Yeah, let's talk about Guardians of the Galaxy. So, uh, before we start, this is Cinema Excelsior. Uh, from from digital left to digital right, we have Daniel Watson-Jones. Hello. Uh, Daniel today is playing the role of Anders Berglund. Uh, sure. Next to him, we have Derek Long, uh, Dr. Hey, Derek Long, uh, who is playing the role of Bjorn Skeefs. Uh, next to him, we have Nick Bester. Just sitting there silently. Or did he cut out? <laughs> is, is he frozen? Hello. Yeah. You guys there? Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're here. Intr- okay. Sorry. You, you all froze for a moment. All right. So that's Nick Bester. Hi there. <laughs> and he's playing. Ain't no thing like me. <laughs> he's playing the role of uh, Jan Goldbeck. And uh, I'm Stefan Claypool. I'm playing the role of Hinky Ekestub. And we are four of the six members of Blue Swede. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. Like, there, was a where, there was a moment where we were like, is it, are these the members of ABBA? No, these, these people sorry. don't have the name starting with A and B. I'm sorry, four four of the seven members of Blue Sweet. I I didn't know I Blue Sweet was actually Sweden. I gotta say, Stefan, you lost a real opportunity in not choosing ABBA when there are four of us. Fuck! <laughs> All right, let's start over. I, I claim BB Anderson. Is that her name? All I right. think that's let's, her name. Let's start. Let's. I call, I call Ben Anderson. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, Derek, you can be Benny Anderson. Uh, Benny Anderson. Yep. Anderson. Uh, Dude, you can be uh, Agnetha Feltstog or Feltskog. Uh, Bester, you can be yeah. Annie Friedlings, uh, Lingstad, and yeah. and I'll be Born Ulveus. Um, Very nice. And we're the members Thank of Blue so. Swede. <laughs> uh, and we're here today to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, directed by James Gunn and starring a, a level band of miscreants and also Nick's favorite actor, Bradley Cooper. I hate him so much. Even in this that I like, I hate him. <laughs> the only saving grace is that he doesn't sound anything like Bradley Cooper. It does not sound like it's Bradley ba- Cooper. It's very, like, I watched videos of him performing it, and I still don't entirely understand how he's making that voice. Fair Wait, enough. that's actually him? Yeah. Yeah, he's Rocket. He really committed to the I, role, turning himself into a they, raccoon and all. I thought that they put his voice through some kind of modulator. No, that's that's him. At least, at least the videos that I saw, I mean, it's possible there's some modulation that they're, you know, not being upfront about, but it seemed like it was him just, like, doing the voice work. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's very impressive. Yeah. yeah, you know, as much as I hate him, I gotta give him credit for doing some good I voice no work idea here. You had such strong feelings. Or I, any feelings about I irrationally Cooper. hate him so much. There's something about his face that is just so eminently punchable. Okay. I I'm just mad that he's famous. I remember <laughs> watching. <laughs> I, re- 
I remember watching Alias, and I've only seen like the first season and a half of Alias, but the very end of the first season of Alias is a cliffhanger, and it seems like his character may have died. And I'm fairly certain the reason I stopped watching Alias is because his character did not die. Wow. I was excited that he was dead, and then he wasn't, and I was mad. Hmm. That's pretty incredible. I had no idea that he never had any kind of TV career. Nice. The first thing I ever saw him in was Wedding Crashers, and I forgot he existed. Mm-hmm. And then I saw him in The Hangover, and didn't know I'd ever seen him in anything before that. Yeah, he started in uh, he started in TV. He was on Alias for like the first two years, and then made some guest spots. Oh. Yeah, I didn't hate him nearly as much as Bester did, but you stopped watching Alias at about the right time. Yeah, there was something like her, her mom came back, and they were like in some sort of cliffhanger thing in a mine, I think, and I just stopped watching. No, I didn't fair. care. Still dangling. So let's, uh, to understand this film, let's go back, uh, back in time, a long time ago, to the year 2014. Uh, it, w- it was a, yeah. A different time, a hopeful time. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, that's right. No, Wet Hot American Summer was the first thing I ever saw. Yeah. What, was, what was happening in 2014? Um, Twitter user growth was on the rise. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I... I a now I'm actually kind of... CK was thrilling audiences yeah. with Louie. <laughs> now I... 2014 uh, event. I, yeah, I do actually feel kind of bad. I'm struggling to remember things that happened in 2014. It was uh, not... There was, that, there was that Ebola epidemic. Yep. <laughs> All right. Uh, Scotland almost left the UK. That's right, that's right. Um... Boko Haram killed 300 people in Nigeria. <laughs> Are we all just looking at the Wikipedia page for 2014? Uh, since we since we brought up Boko Haram, maybe let's swing back to talk about uh, the film we watched instead of uh, horrible atrocities. Uh, yeah, and Guardians of the Galaxy came out. Uh, and- Pope, Pope Paul VI was beatified. Oh, good for Paul. He made it. He got EP. Wally. Um... Oh hey, that thing, uh, the uh, the uh, that thing landed on the the uh, comet, the Rosetta spacecraft. That happened yeah. in 2014. That was a fun thing. There was probably an Olympics. Um, Maybe, yeah. In That's Russia. Okay. Oh yeah, that was the one where the Olympic Village was like falling apart around people. All right. All right. You mean every Olympics? Hey, hey. It was that, you know, it was that Olympics where uh, everyone where got. There were where, problems with the facilities. Yeah. And everyone got built out a Olympics lot of money. So they all fucked each other. Anywho, hey there. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. So this, at the time, uh, I remember seemed like a really weird film to be coming out through Marvel because there was a big. When uh, Marvel was really announcing its series of films that were going to come out, they said, all right, Iron Man 2 is going to come out. And people said, yeah. And then Captain America and Thor and the Avengers. Yeah, it all makes sense. And Guardians of the Galaxy. And everyone said, what the hell is Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah, I remember all of the, you know, trade press discussion about this film being a big risk for Marvel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, I mean, we've talked about the past, so, you know, Captain America and Iron Man, these characters are, like, are much more A-list superheroes now after the MCU. Mm-hmm. But they were still all, like, recognizable yeah, you knew uh, superheroes. People, yeah, people knew who Captain America were, people knew who uh, the Hulk was. Maybe you didn't know that much about Iron Man or uh, or Thor, per se. You know, but, like, mm-hmm. yeah. these were heroes he- outside of the, the original. Like, I certainly had never heard of the Guardians of the Galaxy when I had never heard announced. No. No idea. Yeah. 
Like I, th- th- they've been around a while, but they've always been, you know, a fair or uh, obviously now now they're a list. Yeah, but ca- the way that... calling them C list at that point would have been generous. Yeah, like it was it was a uh, an odd pick, um, and I think it'll be interesting after we go through. Yeah, even the... Ant Man was more well known. Oh yeah, Ant Man yeah. at least was an Avenger. Um, I think after we go through the summary, it, it'll be interesting to kind of figure out looking back at the film they made, why they chose to make this film with these characters. I feel like it's fairly clear after watching this film that they wanted to expand the Marvel Universe out into the universe. Uh-huh. And this was their method for getting off of Earth. Yeah, but they could do something with Cyclops' dad and those space they pirates. They could do something with Nova. They couldn't, much though. More established yeah, character. Cyclops' dad and the space pirates can't be in the MCU. Fair enough, fair but they, they could have done something with Nova, who was a much more established character. Yeah, um, they could have started with Captain Marvel. They could have done Nova. Captain they could Marvel, have, yeah. yeah. Um, so we are... Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, yes, definitely this this introduces sort of the, the, uh, the space component of the MCU, which mm-hmm. Thor Ragnarok, which most of us have seen here, d- d- does uh, a whole lot with as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, is going to be important with Thanos. I understand that, but, yeah. you know, there are... I think there are other... Maybe not like super A list ways to do that, but like this is definitely, yeah. It still seems in that context, maybe not an odd choice, but a surprising choice. Well, yeah, I mean, it was certainly out, out of left field, but uh, so we we begin our we begin our journey on this film in uh, 1988 with uh, the song "I'm Not in Love" by 10CC, which. I'm going to go out on a limb and like I'm casting my vote right now. This is my favorite song on the soundtrack. And I think it's the greatest love song in the 1970s. Oh. So I'm Ooh. throwing down. I'm, I'm sorry. This is a soundtrack that has cherry bomb on it. You are wrong. <laughs> cherry bomb. Yeah. Come on. Mm. Come on. Yeah. I'm not in love. Don't forget <laughs> it. Um, we started in 1988 with a, uh, a young uh, Peter Quill. Uh, who is in a hospital. He is uh, comforted briefly by his character actor grandfather and then led into a hospital room uh, where he speaks to his mother, who is dying of cancer. And his mother... uh, You don't know she's dying of cancer. Well, she dies. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and she has no hair. Yeah, yeah. this has been Nick's needlesly pedantic and a gunshot wound. Yeah, yeah. Let's be needlessly pedantic. Fair enough. That's uh, that's the subtitle of the podcast. Needlessly pedantic. Um, I think that's our category on iTunes. <laughs> needlessly pedantic slash Billy Barty fan podcast slash long <laughs> We're the only Billy Barty podcast in the needlessly pedantic Look, section. It's, it's a niche, but it's our niche. Um, we found our corner of the sky, and we're making it ours, damn it. So Pete, the rest of the Billy Barty podcasts are in the needfully pedantic section. <laughs> needfully pedantic. Necessarily pedantic. <laughs> oh, God. I, uh, oh, uh, no, I don't have a band at hand. Uh, to create a tribute band called Necessarily Pedantic for, I guess, maybe Genesis. Um, <laughs> or King Crimson. King Crimson, yeah. The needlessly pedantic works of uh, of Phil Collins. Anyway, uh, Peter watches his mother die. He runs from the hospital. That old chestnut. 
runs from the hospital, cries in a mist-covered field, and is immediately abducted by aliens. Oh, and he gets a gift, uh, oh, yeah. which is put into his backpack. Yeah, he's uh, given. He that. even gets a chance to gesture at opening it, and then is told, "Open it after I'm gone." He's given that uh, that box from uh, Castaway. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, I was going to call it a MacGuffin, but it's not even a MacGuffin. No, it did, no, there is a MacGuffin yeah. in this film, and this does not rise yeah. to MacGuffin level. No. Um, flash forward. Oh, there's a MacGuffin. There is, in fact, been a commentary about MacGuffins in this film. Yeah, I thought a MacGuffin had to be like essentially meaningless. Uh, but it has to be me. It, but like to the characters, it has to be meaningful. Like all yeah. of them have to care about but, it. But like, like so, the Infinity Stone here is the MacGuffin, and but, everybody cares about it. But like, if if it, if it were a bomb that he was using to blow up uh, Nova Prime, it wouldn't change much about it. But there'd still be everyone. So like, the Maltese Falcon is the classic MacGuffin. I know. It doesn't. Saying, really... I don't think this counts as a MacGuffin because it actually has a specific use. So do all MacGuffins. I mean, the, the specific use of all MacGuffins is to motivate plot action. Yeah. Okay. So, what so, makes so a MacGuffin like, a MacGuffin is exactly what it is. Is the sort yeah. of particulars about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, so the fact the Maltese Fal- the Maltese Falcon being a fake at the end is not what makes it a MacGuffin. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> also, our also our category. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> if they if they had all been going after you know a chest full of gold or a briefcase full of uh, uh, of money plutonium. or you know stolen plutonium, it wouldn't really change any character motivations. They would all be a bunch of criminals stabbing each other in the back to try and get money. Yep. It just happens to be within this story. It's a statue of a of a bird that's supposedly very valuable. There are no statues of birds in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Uh, Flash. Let's let's talk. Let's talk about the MacGuffin itself. Dude, you can think. You can think what MacGuffins mean. uh, Anything you want. This is. No, that's not what I'm arguing. This has been needlessly pedantic. I'm I'm (laughs) trying to say that that is not what they're all going for. That that's what a couple of them are going for. It's and everyone else is going for those other characters. It's the thing that motivates the plot. Yes. Yeah. That's that's the I thought so the glowing the glowing briefcase in Pulp Fiction is plot but also is not like specifically uh, I'm gaveling the debate on MacGuffin definition. <laughs> I it keeps tigers out of Scotland. That's the definition. All right. Speaking... I feel like I was shouted down and barely got to say any of my actual thoughts. Okay, say your thoughts. Oh. I okay. I guess this is how what, how I thought about a MacGuffin, uh, but I th- I think of them as something that never actually gets used in the film itself, uh, or it gets used at the end of the film so that its its presence in the lives of the characters uh, is you never actually really get to see that. Like in Casablanca, the the passports or whatever it is, letters the papers, of transit, letters of transit, those are MacGuffins. Yeah, the letters of. Uh, yeah. They get used at the end of the film. Like, that's the point. The movie ends when they arrive. And the Maltese Falcon, when it arrives, it's uh, that's the resolution. Uh, And with this, I feel like it's present through the whole film. uh, And it actually holds a different uh, point. A couple of characters actually get to use it. It has effects on things around it that that come from itself, not just from the way that people act around it. 
Yeah, I, I I would agree with that, but I would also say you know like the Pulp Fiction glowing briefcase is mm-hmm. also like a very classic sort of canonical example of the MacGuffin, and they go and retrieve that at the very beginning of the movie. Okay. So it's not necessarily has to be at the end, but yes, you are the, right that nothing that, in that, the briefcase that, ever affect ever is like yeah yeah no but, but, yeah, but, but I'm agreeing with you. You're right yeah. that like in these other examples, uh, it's de- it would definitely be much easier to ch- to tra- change things out, change the multi mm-hmm. change the Maltese Falcon, but all the character motivations for a different object. It's going to be the same movie. Change the briefcase out for something. Yes, yeah. it's not it's not as clear. You can't take the Infinity Stone out, and there's it's Replace not it as it's not as the perfectly Infinity a gun. Yeah. <laughs> it is not as perfectly a MacGuffin as yeah. the Maltese Falcon, but I think it definitely, you know, I think as as plot devices go, the Infinity Stones, at least up until Infinity, Infinity Wars, stands, yeah. have I been think... at the very least very MacGuffin-y, if not perfectly yes. MacGuffin-y. And as I was watching, I certainly had thought of it as that'll a be the name of our podcast. So, but then uh, the first time I saw this in the theaters, I I saw it at the Alamo Draft House and got very inebriated uh, and barely remembered this movie at all. Uh, so watching it this time felt kind of like watching it again for the first time. We've and seen- I had forgotten how much, for one thing, uh, I'd forgotten you actually see Thanos. Uh, we've talked about, we've talked through the two minute prologue of the movie and we've been talking for 49 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, to be fair, I think we've only been talking about this movie for like 15 minutes. Fine, yeah. fine, touche. If, if you were going to end the podcast now, it would be Thor the Dark World. <laughs> <laughs> so, re- setting uh, debates about specific definitions of MacGuffins aside. Uh, Never! Let's, let's get to the MacGuffin, because 26 years yeah. later, uh, that little boy that was uh, abducted has grown up to be Chris Pr- Pratt. I almost said fine. <laughs> I almost said fine. That's not even a Marvel Chris. I know. He's grown up to be a Marvel Chris. Like, how old do you think that he is as a child when his mother dies? Like 8, 12, eight or 9? Yeah, I was, I was thinking like 10. 10 12. Yeah. yeah, so Just like I would say he's like mid to mid 30s at this point. I would I would say yeah. 36, 37 probably sounds about right. Yeah. But in a state of arrested development. Well, yes. No, he's a man child. Um, so, uh, Peter Quill, he, uh, dances around on a, uh, on the planet Morag and finds a mysterious orb that he's been looking for located in the ruins of a city. He is immediately set upon by Korath, who is played by Jaman Hansau, who every time I see him, uh, yes, you probably said it better than I did. Um, every time I see him in a movie, I wonder why he isn't playing bigger parts in other movies. Um, which kind of bothers me a little bit. Um, yeah. What do you mean? Like, I, he he is an actor with a, with definite gravitas and presence, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. weirded me out in this film to see him playing the henchman of a bland villain. That's how I felt about Glenn Close yeah. as well. Yeah. But I guess I know him from Amistad. And, yeah, uh, like prestige, prestige film. Yeah, no, I mean, there was, there was the time, like, right around, like, 2000, Gladiator. where he, he oh, was yeah. in, like, I mean, he was in big yeah. films. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I had the same experience, Stefan. It's like, oh, why aren't you the big bad? Like, why are you the henchman? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Anyway, so uh, Peter steals the orb. He escapes. He is on the run. 
and he gets in contact with the guy who abducted him in the first place, uh, Yandu Udanta, played by Michael Rooker. Um, yeah! Yeah. M- Michael Rooker's fantastic. Henry! <laughs> Henry himself. The eponymous Henry. Um, uh, yeah. what? uh, what's happening right now? Who's Henry? <laughs> he, he, sorry, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is oh. probably Michael Rooker's most famous role. Okay. Uh, at this point, prob- probably seen. the character he played on The Walking Dead is his most famous role. Yeah, well, no, okay. Actually, this this famous famous role. Role. Yeah, realistically, this might be his no, most famous role. No, now at this point. Okay, fine. Henry was the first thing that like got him acclaimed. <laughs> anyway. I always forget that he was the... Uh, the... Security or not the security guard, but uh, he was in Mallrats. He was the oh, father of Mallrats. Yeah, that was the first thing I saw him in. Yeah, I don't remember a father in Mallrats. I just remember a, a mall <laughs> and rats. It was a mall yeah. that was overrun with rats. Oh, <laughs> and like, uh, doesn't uh, Silent Bob spend the entire movie thinking, trying to develop his Jedi powers, yep. or somebody yep. in that movie yep. does? Silent Bob does. Yeah, it was a mall overrun with rats, and then they rethought the premise, and that's why we got Capital Critters. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just I just Googled him in Mall Rats. I have no memory of this character in Mall Rats. I don't remember Mall he Rats. Was, he was the primary antagonist. He was, uh, uh, I'm sure. He was uh, Claire Forlani's father. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah it's... it's uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's Michael Rooker and he's bald. Yes, obviously he is the primary antagonist of any movie where he fits that description. Derek is the primary antagonist of our podcast. Yep. Clearly. Um... Okay, so Yondu had abducted Quill when he was a child and had been kind of an abusive sorry, but still oddly affectionate father figure to him for 26 years now. And now Quill is uh, betraying him to sell the orb and take the cash for himself. Quill goes to the planet Xandar. Xandar! Uh, to try to sell this orb. Um, and Xandar right now is the subject of, uh, a, well, it was coming out of a war and now is in the, uh, in the proverbial crosshairs of a Cree terrorist named Ronan, uh, played by TV's Lee Pace. Um, <laughs> all my sexual fantasies, Lee Pace. <laughs> all of them? <laughs> oh my God. Have you seen that man's eyebrows? Come on. Yeah, the eyebrows are pretty impressive. Um, oh my god! But uh, you won't see those eyebrows in this film because he's no. slathered up in blue and back black paint and wearing a hood for the entire. Who film. hires a man this beautiful with such a basic eyebrows that does this to him? <laughs> Why Marvel? Why? Um. So, uh, what's it? he's so forgettable? Uh, Ronan. Um, <laughs> I. I'm so sad because I love Lee Pace so much, but I just, I cannot give a flying fuck about this he's character. Really, he's wasted. Yeah. He's, he's pretty boring. He's boring even for Marvel villains. Yeah. He, yeah. He's, yeah. He, is, he is a notch above uh, Christopher Eccleston in Thor The Dark World. I'm not even sure he's above Eccleston because th- Eccleston's got the fucking George Washington But I like I like that Ronan, a lot of times in the film, is just kind forgot of... about that hair. <laughs> God, yeah, you guys that... talk so much about hair. I just had to listen to Bester soliloquy about uh, Lee Bass's eyebrows. <laughs> he has amazing eyebrows. No, I like the fact that Ronan the only at eyebrows different... I think I've ever noticed from a celebrity are Salman Rushdie's. <laughs> no, He's got good eyebrows too. I, li- I met him. I like that Rome. You met Salman Rushdie. 
I bet oh, Selwyn Rushdie. Oh, he's at Emory all the time. Yeah, he's at Emory all the time. Like, I, like I, I've, been, I've been at talks with him. I well, don't know if I've been All the time since the fat one. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, what was I saying? Oh, no, I was saying... Uh, Half the people in this podcast have met Selwyn Rushdie. <laughs> yeah. Um, needlessly pedantic. Needlessly pedantic. <laughs> no, I, I, I like that Ronan uh, at times is very pouty and childish. Um, oh yeah, I, I did like that yeah. bit of characterization, but that's about it. And and, uh, and uh, like I like his reactions at the end to uh, the ridiculous dance off uh, gambit yeah. uh, are great as well. Like he has, but he has his moments. But he d- like, but but puts a, puts some goddamn George Washington hair on him. He's absolutely going to be <laughs> yeah. so many notches above Christopher Eccleston. Yeah, give give him that founding father do. Um, okay, so uh, Ronan, he has his two uh, his I guess three henches. So hench number one is, is Korath, who we met. Hench number two is uh, Gamora, played by uh, again, correct my pronunciation, Zoe, Zoe Saldana. Uh, and then uh, hench number three is Nebula, played by Karen Gillan. And Ronan tasks Gamora, who is daughter of Thanos, to go and retrieve the orb uh, from Peter. Uh, Peter is trying to. Well, sell- so is Nebula. So is Nebula. They, they are both daughters yeah. of Thanos. They're on loan. They're on loan from Thanos for for reasons that aren't entirely clear. It's like, they just it's like are. a study abroad program, or they're kind of doing their yeah, realm. They're doing their realm like, here, uh, here, Loki, have a scepter. Here, yeah. Ronan, have my it's, dog. It's on like Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon being fostered under John Aaron. Maybe, uh, yeah. Needlessly pedantic. Yeah. Anywho, but also, also, we should point out, not daughters of Thanos. They're like very clear that these are not like biological daughters. He just has like a cadre of sexy assassins. Yep. Who are his daughters? There seem to be others implied. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, they're not actual daughters. No. Oh, I thought. I honestly thought they were. No, no, they are not. I think they they go in in the second film. They talk more explicitly about that. Okay. Yeah. Um, they're both adopted and they're not related, yeah. but they're sisters and they have a whole thing. And so, Karen Gillan has a distractedly bland accent. Uh, ne- needlessly pedantic. Um, about a month <laughs> or a month and a half ago, I got on a big Muppets kick because I finally read uh, Brian J. Jones's biography of Jim Henson. Oh yeah, sure. which is fantastic. Uh, and then I watched The Great Muppet Caper, and one, it's great still. And two, uh, my favorite recurring joke in there is the idea that Kermit and Fozzie are supposed to be identical twin brothers. <laughs> and uh that that's how if uh in the world where uh nebula and gamora actually are uh thanos's daughter and sisters that's the first thing that came to mind yes while we're on the subject the of the uh great muppet caper yes if at any point i actually segue into dressing like an adult great muppet caper gonzo has always been the stunt <laughs> animal i've been hoping to foster in my life if i could just be wearing like that like the the I don't know what do they call those diamond check sweaters, Argyle, uh, yeah. Oh, Ar- yeah, Argyle sweaters over uh, sh- shirts. Oh man, that's what I want to be. Yeah. Gonzo, Muppet Caper Gonzo. Hashtag life goals. My style, yes. My style inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> so we're on Xandar. Was... P- Sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. I was it was a Gonzo comment. It's fine. No, you're it. just googling what Gonzo looked like. I, I was trying to remember what his costume was, and the one I was is when he wears like a a dark red or and purple like velvet suit uh-huh. with uh big uh lapels but i can't remember what that's actually from uh, uh, the kind of thing that you'd expect like a gonzo like. zoot suit uh somewhere between that and a uh like a kind of like a 
house kind of jacket that you'd wear in a study uh, rather than a, like a, smoking a, jacket. Than a smoking jacket. Like not now now I'm imagining it's like is that like, like a that. masterpiece theater setup because that's what yes. I'm imagining yes, him doing exactly masterpiece is he that no he's not the narrator for Muppet Treasure Island he's the it? narrator for Muppet Christmas Carol yes maybe that's maybe that's it yeah I think so he's but he's also in the but he's all oh you're right he is Charles Dickens yeah <laughs> there's a part of me that's so hard for me to think of them as actors who are playing roles it's just that's Gonzo <laughs> I know it's like uh, and I know it's like Crow I and know... Servo on MST3K you don't think of them as puppets they're no, but like, like them, like he is not Gonzo. He is Charles Dickens in that movie. Oh, fair enough. But like, it's so hard to, it's so hard to make that extra layer. But yes, there's also a similar thing. I remember, I think it was Wired, like five years ago or so, did like an oral history of history science that. theater, and there were like some photos of the uh, of the puppets of the robot puppets not being puppeted at all, just sort of still, and they were haunting images. It was like someone had taken photos of their corpses. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> I was haunted by those images of like just a dead crow. Know, I'm like, why would you do this to I, me? I know the images you're talking about. They were horrifying. Um, so, oh, there it is. Speak, I'm looking at it now. Speaking <laughs> of Muppets. It, so uh, it's not just me. I'm no, not the only not one haunted by this image. Yeah. Speaking of Muppets, uh, back on Xandar, we are introduced <laughs> to Rocket Raccoon and Groot, who, uh, as lovely as they are as CGI characters, I now kind of wish were Muppets. Um, Rocket and Groot are trying to capture Quill to get the bounty that Yondu has placed on him. Meanwhile, Gamora is trying to get the orb from Quill. Yada, yada, yada. There's a fight in a plaza, and they all get captured by Xandarian police. Needlessly pedantic. I believe in the movie he is only Rocket. That's right. He doesn't know what a raccoon is. Yeah, he doesn't know what a raccoon is, and like his alias during the whole thing where John C. Riley, another actor who's in this movie for reasons that aren't entirely clear, uh, is like, he goes by Rocket. Mm-hmm. But yeah, John C. Riley and uh, his partner Pete Serafinowitz. Yes, another actor wasted in like, you've got fucking the voice of Darth Maul here, and he's got like three lines. Yeah, he has like six lines. Yeah, what are you doing? You didn't even and get Michael, a... and, and Brendan Fair from Roswell is there with no lines. I'm like, what is happening in Nova Corps? You didn't even get a, a callback to uh, to Pete Serafinowicz's famous line, at last we will have our revenge. Nick, Nick, I mean, I, I know you love Lee Pace, but couldn't... Wouldn't Serafinowicz be a better uh, Ronin here? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I'm, uh, I will absolutely like if, if nothing dude. else, he's going to have you know. Lee Pace is great, but I, like I, he's not he's not there for his voice work. Serafinowicz has an amazing voice, dude. Yeah, really puts, he has a pants shittingly great voice. Guys, you know, you you put some makeup on that guy. That's all you need. Yeah, he's used yeah. to acting in a hood. I feel like I, I like part of the problem is though that you know Lee, Lee Pace. Is you know I'm not exactly sure a list per se, but like he he was having a hot moment there with this in the mm. Hobbit movies, and uh, uh, so you know uh, I think Hulk and Catch Fire was just hitting, and yeah, you know a show that I've, I'm not sure I've ever met anyone who's seen. Um, I've watched the first few episodes, and actually at Derek's wedding, uh, uh, Benji and Brian uh, recommended. No names. <laughs> no names. Um, anyway. So, like, as weird as it is to say that, like, I think they need a big name when they're covering it up in ridiculous blue paint and, like, Lady Gaga uh, eyeliner, uh, I think they do. He's a monster. Sarah Finowitz, as great as he is, like, I don't, like, for what it, you, you need a, you, you need a face under there. You need a name. Yeah. 
Yeah. But yeah, Serafinowitz would be an amazing. I hope we're pronouncing his name correctly. I'm uh, the Tick himself. Oh, I still haven't seen the Tick. Oh, it's so good. It's yeah, the, I'm sure. probably the best I... thing I've seen this year. Okay, anyway. so um, hey, let's stop. Well, let's stop talking about this movie and let's go watch the Tick. Yeah, at, right. at this point. Um, okay, so our our Motley crew. <laughs> Uh, our Motley what if we crew, actually just broke off and the rest of the podcast was the audio from the episodes of The Tick? Just kind of faint in the background. <laughs> oh, that tick. Um, okay, so now our Motley crew is trapped uh, on a Zandarian uh, satellite prison uh, where Gamora is not popular. Uh, because uh, her adopted daddy has basically killed hundreds of planets and all the people on them. Um, and I think she's done like some wet work for him. Like yep. I think it's implied that like she has personally killed a lot of people that yep. that, that these people like. And then, it's not just Thanos. Like it's her herself. And then we meet the other character on the poster of the film, uh, Drax the Destroyer, who is also a prisoner, and he's played by former professional wrestler Dave Batista. And I have to have a needlessly pedantic divergence here. Uh, so Dave Batista. So off brand. I know Dave Batista was a wrestler in WWE for uh, about seven years, and within there had a really fantastic five-year run. Like he had a couple years to establish himself, and then was a top draw for several years. Um, if you were picking out guys from that period of professional wrestling and saying this guy is going to be a crossover star making regular film appearances and becoming a beloved character in tentpole franchise films uh he would not have been the one um (laughs) i remember when he got cast in the film i was genuinely shocked that he would be cast in the film and after watching it i like all of america uh absolutely loved him yeah yeah Yeah, he's kind of a comedic part of the film he's perfect yeah yeah, like you, you, you think of you think like looking at the posters, like all right, the tree and the raccoon, they're going to be the uh, the, the comic, uh, comic relief. <laughs> but yeah, the big the big gray guy with all the tattoos or scarification or whatever they are, yeah. like like I think I think they do a very good job of like I I imagine you know no offense to Dave Batista, I imagine he probably doesn't have like a huge amount of dramatic range, but like they do a very good job of sort of you know. Getting that sort of, you know, overly serious, mm-hmm. like, Zen warrior uh, monotone thing and making it work for the character. Yeah. As as I understand it, I read a thing, you know, a list of facts on the internet about Guardians of the Galaxy. And as I understand it, he did not expect to become a big, uh, like, primary draw actor. Uh, he he wanted to become an actor, but he was specifically aiming to be a character actor. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's got the looks for it. Himself. Yeah. What an age we live in where character actors can be stars and stars can be character actors. Truly a modern miracle. <laughs> um, I was I was watching this uh, this thing earlier on Thor Ragnarok and they were uh, they were making this joke about how like Chris Hemsworth's sort of coming into his own as a comedic actor in that movie. Movie, mm-hmm. and how funny it would be if like he tried to like become like a comedic character actor but everyone was like no fuck you you're a, you're a golden god you have to be a leading man he only gets like romantic <laughs> comedy and drama yeah. roles from now on yeah, yeah saturday right. night live was the first uh first place i saw him be really funny hmm. chris hemsworth or Dave batista yes hemsworth <laughs> ah, I, I don't think i've i don't think i've seen any of his uh so, oh my! Oh, there's one sketch where uh, 
Well, it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll tell you about it later. So, yes. So our, we don't want to get too off track. No, 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 no. We're not. We're twelve minutes into this movie. Forty minutes into this podcast. <laughs> so uh, the crew breaks out of their prison uh, in a well put together action scene uh, and flees to the edges of the galaxy to nowhere. The mining colony in the head of a giant celestial being to uh, sell the orb. To a mysterious collector named Tenelir Tivan, played by Benicio del Toro, in maybe his weirdest performance after the usual suspects, um, <laughs> who we who we were introduced to very briefly in the mid credit or end credit scene. I don't remember. That's what, something oh. that happened in Thor: The Dark World. Thor: The yes. Dark World. It must be. It must be the mid credit scene because the mid credit scene is usually like the more narratively important one. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the end credit scene is the uh, the frost the beast truck, right? the loose on loose on. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Or wherever it was. The frost beast. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, roast beast. Anyway, so they're at nowhere. Um, we get an exposition dump about the origins of the oh Infinity my god, Stones. <laughs> we get dumped on hard. Yeah, with <laughs> with uh, like. 4K HDR uh, footage of the beginning of the universe and the history of these stones. <laughs> An exposition dump in B-Box. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yes. This, so is, for, this like, is the part of the movie where I was reheating my leftovers. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, like, the last seven years of, like, think piece articles, like, hey, what are the Infinity Stones? Finally, a Marvel movie tells people in a movie what the Infinity Stones are. Yeah. This is, this is the let's catch you up portion of the film. Uh, of course, once... I think I must have been out of the room because I do not remember seeing this scene last night. Like he opens it up and like purple circles come out and like he just starts, he like spends five solid minutes going like there were singularities before the universe existed and then the universe happened and these became crystals. I swear and to God, I must have everything. also been reading, reheating my leftovers because <laughs> I did not watch this last night. I mean, I yeah, it was no. a if you know what the if Infinity you... Stones are, then you didn't miss anything. Yeah. Okay. Other than like the fact that they're singularities, I think that yeah. that's a movie specific thing, right? That's yeah. not how what exactly what they are. So but... so we have uh, we have this exposition dump, and then Tivon's assistant decides. To, I assumed that she was knowingly killing herself uh, to try to destroy Tivon's collection. Guess so. Uh, yeah. The guardians uh, get the stone. They're trying to flee from nowhere when Gasp, Ronan's men, show up because Drax got drunk and called them so that he could fight them. Uh, yeah. Another. Action. I think the only real. I think the real reason for her to do that is just to establish to the audience this is what happens when you hold it, yeah. so that when at the end of the movie he holds it, we know what will happen. Yeah. Stakes. Stakes. <laughs> um. There's another well, action also, sequence. Sorry. It also lets out. Howard the Duck and spoilers. Astro, you know, Cosmo breaks this whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another, another action sequence. Uh, uh, Ronan gets the orb. Uh, everyone gets beat up. Gamora and Quill are stranded in outer space for a few seconds, which uh, they did not look like they would survive, but they survived. Uh, Yondu pulls them on. Yondu the is there and so goddamn fast. It takes them like five really seconds convenient. to get to this part of the universe. Yeah. Very uh, convenient. They, uh, everyone has their, we're very low and things are going poorly moment. And then they have the, we'll come together with a, 
a last minute plan moment, and then we have a montage uh, set to Cherry Bomb. Cherry Bomb! Touch me! I wanna be And then we go into the climax. Ronan is trying to get the Infinity Stone to Xandar to destroy the planet to avenge his father and his father before him. Um, what do we have? We have an infiltration of Ronan's ship where everyone gets to be a badass for a few moments. Uh, yeah. we have... Peter Serafinowicz and the, uh, and the Nova Corps like, sets up a net to stop the yep. Black Aster? Dark Aster. The name Dark, Dark Aster. Aster. Um, Dark Aster. Uh, the Dark Aster crashes. Nebula gets away. Ronan comes out of the ship. Uh, Groot Beatles. sacrifices his life to protect the crew during a crash. and uh, But not because he's merchandisable. No, certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, I remember when I, I saw this in theaters, and I was sitting close to like two high school-age girls who would talk during the movie, but eventually got kind of sucked into the movie. And when Groot was, uh, no, not when he was growing into a sphere, but when he walked into the dark room and threw his arms up and fireflies came out, one of the girls with genuine quivering emotion in her voice said, Groot is magical. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean, he is. He is. And and that's when I knew that, no, Groot wasn't going to stay dead at the end of this film. Um, (laughs) We end up back. I mean, nobody fucking dies in these Marvel movies. I'm not sure. Who I, has died in the MCU? Uh, Quicksilver. Well, okay. Who else? Oh, the, anyone else? Did I mention Colson Quicksilver? Dead. <laughs> uh, the moment that I knew that Groot was not going to die was when Rocket said, but you'll die. And it was least, honestly, like the what I remember most distinctly from watching this the first time while very drunk at the Alamo was how clearly that line felt like it ruined the whole movie for me because it's such a like a crystallization of all the things that did not that i did not like about this film where there's no subtext to almost anything because someone will just narrate the subtext i mean one of my big pet peeves of this and this is you know a common pet peeve for villains is like Ronan is almost entirely characterized by other people shitting their pants when when Ronan is mentioned. Yeah, like when mm-hmm. Peter goes to the to Xandar the first time to try and sell it, and like the the middleman is like, "Oh fuck, I'm not dealing with Ronan." He punches yeah. people's faces off or something like that. I'm like, yeah. "This is not effective narrativization. This is not a good way to tell a story." Hit a guy in the head with a. Yep. I once saw him literally shit a brick. I'm not dealing with this. <laughs> this was not the only moment where Rocket just says something instead yes. of us actually getting to see it. But this, I felt, was really egregious because I loved the character of Groot and I, I wanted, wanted to see to him feel, die. <laughs> well, I wanted to feel like he was actually in danger. Yeah. But when there... So, Groot seems to have no specific set of rules about what he can biologically do. No. Uh, he can just grow He's like things R2-D2 in that way. constantly. Uh, but then, mm-hmm. for some reason, Rocket is concerned about him dying there, but there's no clear reason why he's concerned that he will die, or how that will be any different than if he doesn't do that. I, I basically just felt like there were no stakes. Uh, mm. yeah. and, well, also, I feel like, you know... Well, you, you, 
No, I'm sorry. Did I interrupt you? What I wanted to see instead, because I was so annoyed that I tried to imagine it being done better, and it was very easy because all I had to, all they would have had to do was actually show the sphere that he creates being exposed to the outside elements, like the fire. Mm-hmm. You could just see that hardened, like yeah, wooden sphere on fire from the outside. See him struggling to hold together despite that, and then you could have them try to crawl out of like the charred ashes or like charred shell. And they have to break through the shell and destroy him to escape. And because Rocket is smallest, he would get out first and would run straight to, because everything else about the scene would be the same, except all of them would be inside this Groot sphere. Uh, And you, you wouldn't cut away to seeing the the ship crash into the planet. Mm. You could actually see it from inside. And I felt like it would be much more narratively convincing and you wouldn't have to have a character tell us what's going to happen. You could just see it and feel the loss instead of being told yeah. to feel it. All fair points. Yeah, no, I, I agree that would be more effective. Go back to just to quickly go back to your point about like Rocket very often sort of yeah. overly states the subtext or like makes the subtext yeah. text. What one part that really felt falls flat for me with that character is right before this when uh quill is announcing i have a plan i have 12 percent of a plan and there's that exchange where uh uh rocket laughs and it's like that's a fake laugh and it's like it's an entirely authentic <laughs> laugh and i'm just like that that just does not work for me okay. like I, I don't know i don't know if it's about the delivery from chris pratt or if it's the delivery from bradley cooper yeah. but it just you're like you're just the way bradley the way cooper. that they're talking there is is like none of this sounds right none of this is is convincing I don't know what's going on right now. If this was meant to be a joke, it has fallen flat, at least for me. Okay. There we go. Uh, so we're down, we're down on the planet's surface. Ronan's Fuck there. Bradley Cooper! <laughs> Ronan's there. He's got his hammer with the Infinity Stone in it. He's going to destroy the planet. But wait, he is psyched out by uh, Peter doing a dance-off move. Uh, that's my favorite song in the film. Yeah, that's I was about to say, that is, that is such a fucking good song. It's a very yeah. good song. Uh, they blow up the hammer. Quill reaches out, grabs the Infinity Stone. He starts to be shredded by its power. Uh, but then he and the other Guardians all hold hands and channel the power through them and then use the power to destroy Ronan and contain the stone. And they are absolved of all of their crimes by the Nova Corps and sent on their merry way in their own ship with a tiny little Groot sapling that is growing in a pot. Um... <laughs> And they get on the ship, and uh, ABC by the Jackson 5 plays. Oh, and also uh, Peter finally opens that package that his mother gave him, and it's another mixtape of music um, with a little letter from her. And he pops it in, and uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough uh, by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell plays. And that's a lot of fun. Wait, is it ABC, or is it I Want You Back? You're correct. It's I Want You Back. Okay, you are correct. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. <laughs> I want, I want, and I'm, I'm especially sorry because I Want You Back is a much better song. <laughs> the appropriate amount of pedantic. Do you, do you think that Alyssa Milano knows that the ship is named after her? <laughs> Someone must have told her, right? Or she's seen it? I thought that was her. I didn't know she played the ship. No, I'm saying that it's named after yeah. her. That he, the, he, the character named his ship after his oh, TV crush from the 80s, I did not Alyssa get Milano. I did not get I, yeah, no, I, I, I don't mean, thought it's clear. Like, like, he named yeah, the no, ship. No. He gets abducted no, 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 no. in 88. I get it. I get it. Yeah, who's the boss yeah. has been on it, for it always, it always She was like, my first like TV a, crush. It always seemed like a kind of an oddly classy name for the ship. 
<laughs> like, 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 uh, like, it sounds like you know, like an Italian city name or a cookie. Like, it I is de- in fact an Italian city name. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's what I had thought of. I, I had well, obviously, yes, obviously, it's Alyssa Milano, uh, which I don't know when she comes to fame. One of the things I was doing while watching is yeah, like fact checking. Uh, it's either eighty four. I think it's eighty four. Like the fall of eighty four was when it was the boss premiered. Yeah. So ah. he was watching that for you know at least several years. And he got yeah. it done. There were several references like that, like things that came out in like late eighty seven. So like he would have only had like three months of watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and yet is still dropping these <laughs> references. I'm like, well, the the weirdest moment of that for me is that or John he, Stamos, or John Stamos. Uh, not to get us back to MacGuffins, but when when Peter has that like you know he turns Black to camera light. and is and is no no he turns to camera and is like you know this orb has a whole you know uh, blue suitcase Maltese Falcon Ark yeah. of the Covenant kind of vibe. Um, I'm assuming that it's supposed to be a Pulp Fiction reference when he talks about the bl- the blue suitcase, right? 1994. Yeah, but, but that's not a blue unless suitcase. unless. And this would be a real deep cut. He's referencing the suitcase from Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, I think that's what he's referencing. Very impressive. Yeah. Well, particularly because Kiss Me Deadly and Maltese Falcon are both noiry sort of things. So, and yeah, but also the suitcase, I don't, like, Kiss Me Deadly is in black and white, so I don't know what color that suitcase is. But certainly the suitcase in, uh, in Pulp Fiction is not blue. as a black suitcase. Yeah, I mean, so, just my initial reading of that was, oh, he's referencing Pulp Fiction, but I, it yeah. couldn't have been Pulp Fiction. Uh, yeah, I, I assume that is. Or maybe he went back to Earth. We don't know. Who knows? Um, so, yeah. And then we have our uh, mid and not really quite a mid credit sequence because this was one of the things I want to talk about is the fact that this is one of the only MCU movies I can think of that actually uses an opening credit sequence. Um, what do you mean? Well, because like, like con- con- contra- contractually, you have to have two credits. But this is why there's this is why MCU movies have midpoint credits because they don't have opening credits anymore. They show two credits back to back. So you have the more visually interesting one that has like you know gives you all the stars and gives you who wrote it and the directors and the producers, yeah. and then you have the end credits which you also okay. have to have. And the vast majority of these these days, you know. There might be a ti- there. I'm not even sure there's a title card at the beginning. Oftentimes, the movie ends, and that's where the title card comes. At some point in the last ten years, they decided that the the opening credits, the quote unquote opening credits, don't have to be at the beginning of movies. And most MCU movies, you know, you watch, you know, uh, Age of Ultron. Like there's that there's that sequence where there's like a big statue of uh, all of the Avengers fighting Ultron, and like you just like zoom around it. Or in Winter Soldier, you had all the different artwork uh, mm-hmm. representing the different mm-hmm. uh, characters. This was the this was the quote unquote opening credits, and then then you have the mid sequence, uh, the mid credit sequence, and then you have the end credits where you know you sh- show all the people who did all the uh, CGI work and stuff like that. Okay. And so this you is- mean you mean opening credits as opposed to just like the opening title, just like the title of the yeah. Title. I mean, they, yeah. like we actually see the credits and they yeah, use it, it, you know, yeah. in a way that. I can't, I, like, I'm sure there are some other MCU movies who have done that, but certainly, you know, the recent crop of MCU movies have, mm-hmm. I think, almost universally, you know, certainly Spider-Man Homecoming did it, Thor Ragnarok did it, Civil War did it, Age of Ultron did it, Winter Soldier did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Iron Men's did it as well. Maybe the first Iron Man didn't, I can't remember. So, just to 
But uh, like, there's that there's that thing where they have the the title card for the Guardians of the Galaxy will return. I think that's only there so that they can then still have this sort of rhythm of mid credit sequence, credit sequence. This movie's pretty good. This has been Nick pays too much attention to how credit sequences I, are organized in movies. Needlessly pedantic. Uh, no, no, that's interesting because I, I did not understand until I think it was you that said that like TV shows have three sets of credits that I began to, to break down. Like I actually noticed why certain names are split up and a TV mm-hmm. show for one season will have a consistent opening where all of the people... Can you who, hear me? Yes. Now we can. Sorry. Where, have you been talking? Uh, yes. Oh, okay. That's oh. a mic issues. Hmm. Okay. I just, I just thought you were enraptured with my very long discussion <laughs> about credits work in movies. No, no, it makes sense, but we, we did forget to mention uh, the end credit scene where we cut back to the destroyed lab and Benicio Del Toro has a drink with a dog and Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck! I do want to point out, again, for posterity, when, we, when Bester and I recorded our Howard the Duck episode, episode one of this podcast... We predicted at that point in time that during the end credits of Guardians of the Galaxy, Howard the Duck would appear. I remember that. I don't remember that. You that, remember was awesome. that was at least was awesome. a year before Guardians was out? It was, yeah. It was like September 2013 or something like that. Yeah, yeah so we were at least, we were at least like it. six months ahead of it, right? Because this was yeah. like May, I think. Uh, I thought this was, I think it was like August. Maybe. I don't remember. I thought, anyway. But we were ahead of the curve, and we nailed it. Yeah, whoa, go us. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think this this is I, pretty good. Oh, movie. and what the guys have to say about it. Well, what makes it good? We it's, have baby, a... it's baby Groot dancing uh, and hiding from Drax for some reason. That's oh, the yeah. here. Here's here are some of my theories as to as to what makes this film uh, memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, first is, and I think probably the most important is actually the music. Marvel yeah. films do not have memorable soundtracks or music. They do not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it really stands out um, in that regard. Uh, the next is the the ensemble. You know, mm-hmm. I, th- I think this is uh, an exceptionally well-cast uh, ensemble that works together really well. E- even, even the odd casting that we mentioned, like with John C. Riley or Glenn Close, you don't look at it and say, that's bad casting. You just look at it and say, oh, they got them? Yeah. And I'm wondering to what it, to what extent this, this film <laughs> kind of, if, if it didn't start the whole idea of, you know, Marvel films are fun and DC films take themselves too seriously. Even if it didn't start that, it kind of solidified that that kind of distinction in mm-hmm. the sort of, you know, popular mo- in popular press and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for audiences. Um, I mean, it's just a really, I, it, I think it's easy to forget just how, how fun this film is, even in comparison to the previous Marvel films. Yeah. Yeah, that was Hillary's comment on it, was that people are always on board if it's fun and several of the mcu films do i think take themselves too seriously yeah like thor the dark world yeah Uh, it's (laughs) not just a clever name Uh, even i mean even the iron man films uh all the fun in that in that film is kind of tinged with like robert downey jr acerbity it's it's not in the structure it's not baked into it um whereas here it's not it's not just the actors having fun it's it's this whole kind of War, this whole whole kind of subset of the MCU, yeah. 
Well, I think um, I think it's also important to remember that like we're on board with it now, but as we were talking about earlier, like this came out and people were like, this is going to be a big risk. There are a lot of people going like, these are characters nobody knows. And, it's starring you know, it's, some it, guy who plays like the third male lead on Parks and Rec. Yeah, it's, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't have you know, Zoe Saldana is probably the biggest star here, and you know she she's like the love interest yeah. in a lot of things. I actually think that Vin Diesel and Bradley Cooper are the biggest stars here. But they're yeah, not. But they're voices in the film, and that's why they're the more interesting about the casting. Uh, and yeah. and it's comedic. So like there's a lot of things like that, and I think I think it also is important that you know. This follows a lot of the Marvel formula, but also does a good job of sort of breaking breaking the trend, at least. Because I think, you know, and certainly after this point, I think, you know, the, the Marvel formula, at least personally, I've gotten a little bored with uh, several of the movies that have come between here and now. And I think yeah. even at this point, you know, I think Winter Soldier does a good job of breaking away from it. But there definitely felt like sort of the, the Marvel movie formula had really become sort of calcified at this point. And this movie does a good job of, you know, encouraging people to go. Oh, look, they they can do other things. They can they can take a slight risk. Well, yeah. I I actually think that uh, when I saw this the first time, I felt that it was way too formulaic because the beats oh. that the like threat that the characters go through of mm. uh, uh, you know the movie villain captures universal as, killing weapon to destroy uh, planet. It has to establish them collectively as an ensemble. So if you yeah. treat them all as the hero, then they they kind of go through the same arc together because their fates are bound together. And they get brought low. Uh, the, uh, the sacrifice by Groot, uh, where you think that one of the characters is going to die, uh, and then you know, their long-shot plan is redeemed. It, it hits. It hits those beats. Yeah, it, it does. and it. I felt that it was. It was a movie that, in watching it the first time, I was too aware of the script and the structure mm. of the script, and part of it is because of the subtext constantly being made text, uh, and I think that they probably did that very deliberately for the same reason that they did a deliberate '80s soundtrack because of what we're talking about about this being a big risk film. They wanted to make it as relatable and easy to understand as possible, given that they were working with uh, characters that weren't known quantities. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, it's a very that's, safe that's film in a lot of ways. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's an astute observation. I mean, it, it, it is risky insofar as when you put you know, the, the characters of the title up on a poster in mid-2014, uh, you, you, you are taking a risk in how you sell the film yeah. to an audience. But the film itself is not terribly risky. No, it's, yeah. it's pretty safe. I mean, I think, uh, and, like, I'm thinking back to, like, the poster for this movie. Like, I remember it being, like, much more visually engaging than I think a lot of uh, Marvel movie posters are. A lot, of, yeah, yeah. a lot of Marvel movie posters are, like, very... Like you know, floating heads in a blue-black sp space and sort of a vaguely triangular formulation, looking off in different mm -hmm. directions. That's sort of the formula for so many movie posters. Yeah, and I think, like particularly when you're dealing with like you, you don't have Robert Downey Jr., the highest-paid actor in Hollywood, on your thing. You don't have a recognizable actor. You don't have a recognizable character. I think you know they have to 
they have to do a lot. So, you know, I think it's it's an interesting balancing act that I think more or less works. You know, I, I think this movie is, you know, I'm not as, I'm not as uh, enraptured with this movie as I once was. I think, you know, having, I think this is probably the third or fourth time I've seen it. Um, it I've has issues. I've seen this movie more times than any other Marvel movie. And a big part of that is, is Cynthia uh, yeah. loves it. Yeah, I really like it too. Uh, yeah. I think it's also interesting that this is this is the first um, and I think the only one so far MCU movie that's like really solely like solely and originally about a team. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at other Marvel movies that we've looked at, like the X Men movies before we get into solo Wolverine movies or the Fantastic Four movies, mm-hmm. there's a lot more team focus here. But um, you know, MCU, the, you're right. Yeah, the MCU well, obviously, like, like, like the plan, the plan from the get go was obviously to get them all together. But they had this very conscious strategy of we're going to establish Iron Man, we're going to establish Thor, we're going to cap- establish Captain America, mm-hmm. and then we'll make them a team. They will all have sort of individual ones. This is very much here are five people you you have literally never heard of. You don't know yeah. any of these characters. You might not know these actors. You might yeah. not recognize these actors because it's a talking tree. Um, um, Ben Diesel played a great talking three in Triple X The Return of Xander Cage. Yeah, so I I can't, there aren't any other MCU teams other than the Avengers, right? Yeah, yeah, because Fantastic Four, X Men are not MCU. Yeah, those are not MCU. Yeah, you know, obviously there was that recent murmurs about Fox possibly getting bought out by Disney, which obviously would have had a big uh, impact. Mm -hmm. Blade Trinity was not MCU. That was a team film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think at some point, like, when, particularly once you get into like some of the later sequels, you know, yeah. Thor Ragnarok is very much about sort of Thor making his own yeah. team, and we gotta and, add and, these and, new and, characters. Soldier Winter Soldier is about like him making his own mini team, and Civil War is about two different teams of Avengers splitting off into different teams yeah. of Avengers to fight each other. Uh, so, mm-hmm. like, there's still a team dynamic there, but like, this mm-hmm. is very much like. We're going yeah. to set up like our heist movie group of criminals that you get to know, yeah. and they all come together mm-hmm. in that sort of Ocean's Eleven, let's make wise cracks mm-hmm. and hate each other, but then yeah. love each other kind of a way. I actually think that that is one of the strongest points of the film is or consistently the best scenes are when it's the five of them like, mm-hmm. bickering with each other. Like that, yeah. the, uh, mm-hmm. the scene with Rocket and Quill didn't fall flat for me. It does feel kind of awkward because... And I think that's probably deliberate on their part because they don't actually know each other very well yet. So mm-hmm. they're actually arguing about whether it's a fake laugh or a real laugh. Uh, yeah, like I think I think the like the logic of that uh, of that back and forth mm-hmm. and like the rest of that scene it, it plays for me. But yeah. I, I did, there's something about I think I think Bradley Cooper's delivery on that like <laughs> for some reason. And again, I I'm you know entirely blinded by my <laughs> irrational, entirely rational hatred for Bradley Cooper here. Um, he's just so fucking punchable. That smug asshole. Um, but there's just something about the Jeez, delivery. I was into there. that niche for quite a while. Like, just, that was uh, his wedding yeah. crashers. Like I mean, yeah, like that's his whole thing. He knows that. Oh yeah, no, like, yeah, like he's he's leaning into it. But yeah. like I, so in, in some ways, maybe this is you know a, a statement of like of you know how effective Bradley Cooper is. It's the part where he then switches to leading man, like. I remember the part where, like, my, like, vague disdain for Bradley Cooper really, really 
transmorphed into like just seething hatred, and that was when he hosted SNL for the first time. The fact, the fact that the universe had decided he was a big enough star, a big enough commodity to host SNL, I was furious. And I still yeah, haven't forget. That was after the hangover, right? Probably, I've yeah. Never, or I've it never might have been seen, between the I've hangover never seen and, you this fired uh, up about anything in I, your entire life. I've never seen you this passionate about it. I hate him so much. <laughs> um, I, not to, to speak of Mr. Cooper, uh, who Nick does not want to hang with. Um, but... I'm, not, I'm, I'm very glad that my, my brain had already gotten to hang with Mr. Cooper by the time you got there as well. So I was like, yes, yeah. we're on the same page. But also uh, there's a part of me going, no, that's not Sinbad. That was a different uh, tall black no, comedian. It, no, it was not Sinbad. Um, it was Mark Curry. Oh, right. Um, yeah. No, um, as far I want to go back to that that casting point because uh, again I think there are a, a lot of actors whose there are a lot of actors in this film whose potential is not leveraged to yeah. its fullest and we've mentioned that um, which is I'm almost okay with that in a weird way because like you you use the actors for the script you have mm-hmm. um, but I think there are more actors in this film who I would not have bet on their potential being that high who the script brings them to another level. And I think Chris Pratt is yeah. probably top of that list. Um, and I, I don't, I am not part of like the universal contingent of Chris Pratt fans. Um, I did not like him in Jurassic World, but a big part of that is I really hated Jurassic World. I have seen Jurassic World. It's a, it's a terrible film. It is. Um, it's, I watched uh, the Daredevil series on Netflix where Vincent D'Onofrio is so incredibly nuanced and mm-hmm. wonderful and sensitive. And then I watched him in Jurassic World and I hated him more than I've ever hated an actor. It's like, you can do so much better than this, but you're not and you're happy about it. Okay. Anyway, um, no, I think what worked for Chris Pratt in this film, and it's the same thing that worked for the film itself, is, and this probably goes back to his roots on things like Parks and Rec, um, he is a very good actor at playing off of other actors and reacting to, like, multiple points of action around him. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, which Nick is so good at training that <laughs> style of acting. Yeah, and so it, it was... And then I started thinking about, okay, so you cast him as the lead in your very strange, nigh-unsellable blockbuster... And um, when it was announced, it was very strange casting. But seeing it in the context of the film, it totally works. Because if you had dropped a traditional leading man, a Carl Weathers, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. If you drop a traditional leading man into the film who's who is a pro, who is trying to carry the film or who is trying to be the center point of the film, I'm not sure it works as well. And you think about like Robert Downey Jr. in the Avengers films. Like the Avengers films cannot be about Tony Stark and have the effect that they need to be as ensemble pieces. You're either about Tony Stark or you're an ensemble piece. And this film is an ensemble piece, and Chris Pratt was very, very well suited to that, again, in a way that Carl Weathers may not have been. Yes. Uh, uh, and, uh, like, one of the things I just looked up, like, what his filmography is, because, like, this is, certainly, this is certainly the movie that puts him into the A-list. 
But like, I was like, like, where's the leading edge of this trend? Like, when when is he starting to make that? Because you like usually, you know, like if you go back to like the Robert Downey Jr. Yep. Uh, renaissance of like ten years ago or so, like Iron Man's what puts him like back yep. into the big leagues. But he had been doing interesting things for a while. So he was in Moneyball. He so, was in Zero Moneyball. Yeah. So like Moneyball in 2011 and Zero Dark Thirty. I remember watching Zero Dark Thirty and like, why is why is Chris Pratt here and why is he swole as hell? What's happening? <laughs> uh, but uh, but also uh, I had forgotten that the Lego Movie uh, came out earlier the same right. year, oh. and he is he's Emmett in that. And I feel like Emmett is much more, like is much more an Andy style character. Yeah. Like you know it, it, mm. that that's not like no one's going like what is Chris Pratt thinking emoji doing in this movie? He's just like oh yeah, obviously Chris Pratt makes sense for this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know I think it's, well, I think I it's, felt you know, that Will was a much more Andy style character than I was expecting. Yeah, it's very loose, very friendly. Yeah. Man childish. Yeah, so like, you know, when you watch the trailers, like they really emphasize like that moment where like he gets sprayed down with orange prison goop. Yeah. And, like, Showing off his and like his he's buffness. like like holy shit, he got he got jacked. His um, royal swollenness. And you know, he's he he's okay, you know, in the action components, but like this is this is definitely not, you know, this is still a comedic role. This is still very mm-hmm. much Sort yeah. of within it's it feels it feels like on a surface level a big departure from Andy, but like when you get down into it, like this is not this is this is what would have happened if Andy had been abducted uh, yeah. and said like grown yeah. up out here. He it's, would be he would be tougher. He would be more competent, but he would still be that kind of a man child. It's I'm more sorry. surprising that they made this character the centerpiece of an action film than it is that Chris Pratt yeah. would play this character. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well. They, they, they needed they needed a conventionally attractive white man to be at the center of the movie. Yeah. I mean, he's let's so be honest. Conventionally attractive. Oh my god, he's gorgeous. Blake Shelton was busy at that point. God <laughs> damn it! What? <laughs> what what's the day? You're dating this episode. <laughs> it's timely. So, it's a timely reference. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. He was. Wasn't he? Who, first of all, who is Blake Shelton? He's, he's the sexiest singer. man alive. <laughs> Wait, what? The voice. R- Ryan Reynolds has been dethroned? He's a country music star. The Rock has been dethroned. People Magazine looked at The Rock and said, no, there's a potato-looking country music star. He is the sexiest have, man alive. See, but I, here's the thing with The Rock, though. I feel like with The Rock, you, you do have to disqualify him from competition for a few years because do you really want to see, like, ten consecutive years of The Rock I mean, winning yes. this award? What about Idris Elba? Uh, Idris Elba? Michael B. Jordan, he was my he was my pick. Uh, but yeah, there's plenty of there's plenty of Tycho when you t- cast Tycho your like ballot. Kiki, like oh my god. Um, also very sexy. There's a lot of options, and Blake Shelton should be very near the bottom of that. I feel like there's something else I was going to say. Oh, speaking of The Rock, have you guys seen the Rampage trailer? No, it just no. came out today, but I need yeah. to. I love it's, The Rock. Wait, it's surprisingly the ape or the lizard. Uh, it's about all of them, but like no. Wait, he, seriously, he's, it's actually based on the game. It yeah. is. It is <laughs> like he's he's the keeper of like this uh, of this gorilla. He's like a, a wildlife warden, and he's got like this albino gorilla named George. And like a science experiment gone wrong, like crashes out of the sky and turns George into a giant rampaging gorilla. And yes, no. it's absolutely based on the uh, wow. the video game. And it looks it looks dumb as hell, but like in a really compelling way. Yeah, I am oh, seeing I that movie. Want to see that? Yeah. I mean that's that's the rock's bread and butter. It's make making dumb as hell films yes. wildly enjoyable. Yes. And the diesels as well, you know. 
yeah. putting them together in uh, the Fast and the Furious movies was the most brilliant thing that's ever happened. Mm. <laughs> like peanut butter and bananas. Yeah. Um, like peanut butter and another very similar version of peanut butter, but he's much, much bigger and much, much musclier. <laughs> so, um, a, a, I feel like there's so I, many pedantic there, diversions we can go down, but I, I do want to... Criticisms yeah. or questions that I it. felt like I had. Um, well, the context for, one. for what Peter Quill is doing when he goes to get the sphere, I feel like I really want to know where he got the information to go here, why, why Chiman Hatsu shows up literally like one minute later that to was this, convenient. this <laughs> empty planet world that has one of the Infinity Stones on it. This artifact of unspeakable power, utterly There's unguarded. Someone. And it does make sense that if someone found out, probably more than one someone would find out. But yeah. I feel like I just want three lines of dialogue to explain this. That's fair. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um... I mean, it occurred to me that, you know, this might just be, you know, Thanos having multiple uh, iron irons in the fire. And, yeah. like, he, he is the buyer himself, but also sent sent one of his henchmen uh, via his proxy, R- Ronan, yeah. to get the Infinity Stone. Because Ronan's after the... Uh, like, who the fuck knows? But, yes, you're, you're la- right. He's I laundering really, Infinity Stones. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, but, yes, that that's a good point. Uh, and you know, I think uh, we we've already touched a little bit about you know how how weak Ronan in, is as a uh, as a villain. You know, but I feel I, like I, the uh, the Marvel movies have really only two two villains that they repeat over and over again. Like what, like you know, it ultimate power dude who wants to destroy the universe for not entirely clear reasons, and corrupt businessman who has stolen the hero's powers and is trying to steal more of them. That's well, pretty much ninety percent of. Super uh, super villains. He doesn't want to destroy the universe. He wants to destroy this race. And honestly, right. I feel like he kind of the the way that people talk about him is the way that conservatives talk about Sharia law. And I it mean, feels sure. like he's supposed to be a, ze- a religious zealot who wants to bring. He is a religious zealot. I mean, he is explicitly of, defined as a terrorist. Yes. Uh, to this otherwise peaceful peace treaty valuing people. Yeah. No, I think I think you know that's absolutely. It's almost like they don't want us to like him and to think he's a bad guy. <laughs> I know. What 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 version? Like he wants to bring his race's version of justice to. Like, so he just wants to kill everyone. Is that what we're supposed to understand? Like, I think he, yeah. He he wants to what whatever Cree justice is supposed to be. Well, you know he's uh, he's he, got he, this like generation old conflict. Yeah. It's, it's all clearly just a metaphor for the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We can't um, possibly understand the generations of backstabbing that's been happening here, but he's going to go to this planet of mainly white people and blow it up with purple. Oh, they're not. Black. They're not mainly yeah, white. There are several purple people there. That's <laughs> true. Okay, um, but, every, but everyone with a line. There are blue everyone people. Everyone with a line in the Nova Corps. John C. Riley is married to a pink person, and he has a pink daughter or son. I think it was <laughs> yes. a daughter. Anyway, um. We we do we should talk of, for just a minute. You can't really tell with those pink net, people. You gotta strip them down to net. almost nothing before you can before you know. Jeez. He Jesus. is stopped by a net of golden crucifixes. Yes, <laughs> a some teamwork. Goddamn, it's it's the teamwork, Christ. Yeah, some goddamn <laughs> Neon Genesis Evangelion shit is happening there to stop him from landing. And uh, yes. 
Also, um, I was looking through my notes at one point, I described the Dark Aster as a twisty, turny, hot topic space sepulcher. Well, yeah, I should see that. Yeah. I do want to talk for a minute about the other blue character in the film, Yondu. Yondu. Um, oh, yeah. If only, if only because um, the character of Yondu in the comics is basically has zero relation to what we see in the film. The film's version he still has really does thing, feel, right? He, he has an arrow. But the film version really does feel like James Gunn wanted Michael Rooker in the film and told him to play Michael Rooker. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why you get Michael Rooker, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah, you, you don't get Michael Rooker for... Uh, yeah, he, he is a character actor. Um, Romantic but, lead, Michael Rooker. Yep. But I, I do... I think he... I bet you could I write think, that movie. It would do well. Oh, yeah. You just need to write uh, a woman who's in love with... The Michael it's Rooker. Ca- it's called "I Love You, Michael Rooker." Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, I want to call him out because I think one of the things that the film does try to establish very quickly is, you know, its sort of weird spaciness, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that basically the first major alien character that we meet is Southern fried redneck Michael Rooker playing a Southern fried redneck is an interesting choice in that. And I thought about it, and I think what it what it does is, if we had met, like, noble alien Yondu, or even traditional space criminal Yondu, um, that would not put us in a, this is going to be out there and wild headspace. Yeah. Yeah. But meeting mm-hmm. crazy redneck Yondu, uh, which is a character type we have not seen in Marvel films before, does put that character and that context out there in a weirder way. Yeah, and so it's right. almost like by playing by playing to that very recognizable convention, but doing it in an environment where it's out of place, it primes us to accept weirdness in a way that we wouldn't have with a more conventional character. Yeah. Right. And we we accept that that weirdness in like in large part because as sort of like sci-fi gestures go. There, there, there isn't that much in this film in the, in the sense that, like, you know, you get references to, you know, other alien races um, or, you know, and, you know, how, how they're, you know, mm-hmm. you know, some, some races have, you know, quills on their, on their head. Yeah. What is it? Yeah, razors for teeth. Razors for teeth. Some races yeah. have, have faces that are black on one side and white on the other. <laughs> other races have faces that are white on but one side and black on the other. Some races be driving like this. Doop, doop, doop. Right. But it, I mean, the, the, the film very carefully avoids establishing the kind of Star Trekky alien. Yeah. That, that you kind uh, of, that you kind I mean, it's not that, that there isn't any I, of that, but it, it's sort of, I, I think it's part of it's part of what contextualizes the humor of the film, you know, in yeah. in some ways, like and and character relationships. Yeah, I would say I would say this is like, it's it's trickiest in like original series alien design. This is like a Technicolor cast of different colored hu- humans, like yeah, a green human, and a right. blue human, and a and a pink human, and like like some some odd little fur. And like I think I think that also fits within sort of the Jack Kirby-ness of this. Like I yeah, think that. Like, yeah. uh, a united federation yeah, yeah. of a every point. rainbow of human, uh, you know, right. works for a very specific style and like kind of a campy style of, of, um, of science fiction where you know other than Rocket and um, and Groot, and Groot. 
are there are there any particularly alien aliens in this movie? Well, I mean, I think Drax is a good example of this. I mean, mm, like, yeah. sort of. I mean, physically, he, he's alien in a, in the sense that he's got you know uh, you know blue skin, and he, he comes from a species that is completely literal. But it, the, but sort of the purpose of that um, that sort of alienness is to make the humor work. Like it's yeah. it's an entire alien race kind of invented for the purposes of. A joke. A joke. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, uh, Hillary's comments about uh, uh, Gamora was that she felt that this, the, the makeup on Zoe Saldana looked more realistic than maybe any other alien she had seen in a film. That she felt like this person looked like they actually existed like this. It didn't look like makeup. It, it was. Uh, I, I noticed that when watching it. It was something about the lips, yeah. like the way the the transition from lip from like mm -hmm. face to lip to mouth. Okay. But also like there's like and like some like ridging on like the forehead and around like the eyes that is like you know like we're you know we're still keeping Zoe Saldana being one of the most beautiful women in the world, yeah. but like it's not like, it's not entirely glamour makeup. Like it it, yeah. it feels and more, like the, it, the the way that the light hits her, it, it doesn't have like the weird makeup shine to yeah. it. I mean, it's, yeah, she you know, look for like she's a, computer generated. Well, yeah, she doesn't look computer Which is more than you could say for Avatar. That was a crappy yeah, makeup job. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, but like and, it, it doesn't feel like a human in green makeup the entire time. And you know, I think you know yeah. for a movie that's full of like people it. in green makeup and blue makeup and pink makeup, I think it does a fairly good job of making these feel like like not just humans that you colored pink but or colored uh, blue. Right, but it's for a different purpose. It's 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 less for kind of like building this world mm -hmm. in a way. I mean, it, it does build a, I think it's successful in like, yeah. they, I think it's a more interesting part of the MCU world than the sort of, you know, than mm -hmm. uh, like the Thor movies. But yeah, um, but yeah it's I certainly like more about what's happening in the Guardians of the Galaxy quadrant than yeah, I do about yeah. anything near yeah. uh, wherever the but, hell they're but from. There's, but know, there's, maybe, maybe, maybe what did it say Valhalla? I knew this was wrong. Maybe, maybe a way to think about it is like, I'm interested in that world, but I'm not interested in building that world, if that yeah. makes sense. I'm interested in what the characters do within this world, but yeah. I don't, I don't care to, I don't care about seeing an Oscarian. Well, that's I, the, that's the, the greatest generation principle at play. It's, uh, it's the MCU as a place, uh -huh. um, yeah. not as a emotive story. Not the World War II greatest generation. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, what are wait, you well, I just want to go back to a, uh, my, a Star Trek podcast called The Greatest Generation. Oh, okay. <laughs> I want to go back to sort of the Michael Rooker thing. One thing I was thinking about while watching this and having um, – I don't want to go too much into the second Guardians of the Galaxy uh, movie, but Although I one think of the we things watching – well, the, one of the we things watching watch this, it, like, maybe a, a huge, a huge part of that movie is uh, Michael Rooker at or Yondu as uh, a father figure for uh, Peter Quill, and watching this movie, having that, having seen uh, the second movie, like there's some of that there, but like I'm not sure there's like enough that like some of like the emotional beats when I was watching uh, too, I'm like, are these two guys that close? And was, it, I, and it didn't feel like watching this movie. Yeah. Uh, that like they, 
because a huge part of galaxies like something like, oh, you're my real father. I think like, that, kind of the well, reveal at the end of the movie that I felt was just wrong. Where uh, when he says goodbye to Yondu, and then Zoe Saldana has the line about how like where are your family now? But he says he was pretty much the only family I had, and she says, no. You had more family, or something like that, and both lines are in past tense, and it sounds very awkward. Whereas if he'd said mm. he is pretty much the only family I have, no, have more he is now. not, yeah. then that would make sense. Mm. But it, it just felt very stilted. I think I, I do think this this film needed a minute or two of Quill hanging out with Yondu at the very beginning, like yeah. doing Ravager shit. Um, yeah. Just, just to like establish the terms of that relationship and the terms of like who who is Peter Quill, bef- you know, as he's yeah. trying to become Star Lord, like when, yeah. when he has this impression that he's sort of famous, um, and you know, like I, I can see how it might be difficult to to fit that into the script, but yeah, I think but there yeah, I think there was, there was room to maybe weave that kind of introduction into the sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark sequence that... Yeah, that would that yeah that would uh, do a lot, you know, if you could just, you know, even if it's just, you know, him being on the ship and, like, trying to sneak away so that he can steal the thing before it, but, like, seeing some of that camaraderie, seeing, like, that 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 trust that he has with Yondu, seeing sort of where he is, like... Yeah, yeah so I can see that start out as a or an enemy. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's interesting, because you, you, you only see that relationship in this film after it's broken. Yeah. yeah, and the next film does kind of hinge on knowledge that you never got the opportunity to have. Yeah, and I think all, another problem with that uh, with the second movie, and you know, we were talking about like how great this ensemble is. One of the problems of the second movie is like thirty minutes in, they break up the ensemble, and like mm-hmm. half half of the guardians go one way, half of them go the other way, and they don't meet up until the very and end. And I don't, and I don't care about either of them because I I want to see more Kurt Russell. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, well, thankfully you don't. And his one of them CGI hair. One one thing that I I gotta, say, I gotta say that young that young Kurt Russell CGI is remarkably good. That's it's terrifying. It's very impressive. <laughs> like it, it looks more like Kurt Russell put on old age makeup to play the old version yeah. of himself <laughs> than he did was digitally de Yeah, I mean, pr- particularly given like how far we've come from Last Stand, or even just how far we came from Rogue oh, One, Last Stand. Uh, like a, like a year, like four months earlier, yeah. like that shit. That shit holds up remarkably well. And I'm not a, the hugest fan of that movie, but anyway. Um. I think that there is one thing worth mentioning about this film in relates to the oncoming conversation about volume two in that this is the first like set of two MCU movies where the second one actually rewrites the meaning behind some of the first one where like we learn more about the characters that reveals more about what we've already seen. Whereas in like Iron Man two, nothing about nothing changes watching Iron Man one, given things you learn in two or three. I feel, but in three we learned how in nineteen ninety nine he dicked over uh, what's his face, and that yeah, totally that changes, that that totally changes I'll, everything I'll push, we do about it. I'll push against that a little bit because I do think um, we talked about this a little in our, our Winter Soldier episode. Yeah, um, it's the the Cap relationship with Bucky. 
gets sharpened up quite a bit in the later Tomb films, and particularly in Civil yeah. War, in but, a way that is supposed to retroactively make us feel more strong. Yeah, but I think there's a similar. I think there's a similar issue with Captain America to Winter Soldier that we're seeing with this with uh, with Yondu here in that. I, d I don't think that like the that very intense homosocial relationship that uh, that you know they are they are they are life partners they're so closely Captain and Bucky I I I don't get that from uh from the first Avenger like I I get that they're close but like like I I, I I will I will blow up the world to save my best friend sort of passion that Captain has uh, what I'm saying is that nothing we learn in those films changes what what was true in the first film in okay. first avenger what, what, you don't what, find out that he was secretly working against cap or anything mm -hmm. like that but in uh, the next guardians you, find, film, you do find out he killed tony stark's parents that was after captain america the first avenger though uh, it, that would change something in a different MCU. Okay, so yeah, so character. now 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 we're getting into the blurred lines. Well, no, of, what I'm okay. saying is but, 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 that you learn about more about the, the circumstances of his mother's death. You learn more about uh, his relationship with Yondu. You learn more about where he came from. You learn yeah. more about what his journey has been as a person and what he did not know about himself. Uh, so that when you watch this, the relationship between he and Yondu is something you actually consider which you did not do the first time you watched this film. Okay, so you're talking about basically how Revealed does it affect truth. what we... More than that, how does it affect what we look for now when we go back? Yeah, like dramatic irony. Now it feels like we know more that's, about these characters than they do about themselves. To, to, to get academic on you, that's called additive comprehension. Okay. That's how, like, later media texts, like, inflect how we view it. So, you know, if you go back and watch... Watch the first Star Wars after watching Empire Strikes Back. You're now going to look yes. at Darth Vader very differently. You're going to be yeah. like, "What and the fuck, Obi Wan?" I don't think any <laughs> other set of MCU films has actually done that until now, um, or, or at until least it will at, that dramatically. Like, I mean, uh, yeah, I, you know, there's probably things that you know, a if bit here, you know, a bit watching there, Iron, nothing. watching Iron Man three and knowing that he has PTSD, there maybe you might go back and like Watch look for warning signs. Right. Look for signs. Yeah, but you're, you're not like to, to your point, dude. It's I mean, the the second Guardians of the Galaxy film again. We're, we're getting ahead of yeah. ourselves, but it explicitly does that. Yes. And yeah. Builds the, the builds the the yeah the infrastructure of its plot on, on that. Well, one of the yeah. interesting things about as a sequel, in a lot of ways, Volume Two is an origin story. Like it's a it's a delayed origin story for Peter Quill. Yeah, like yeah. like he's just he's just some kid, and the only indication that he's special is like those two scenes at the very end where well the uh, beginning when his mom says you're the son of an alien, and it, and that other guy well, he was an angel. She said he I don't know I don't know if for sure you're supposed to necessarily read uh, read into that, but like certainly at the very end when it's confirmed it was like you know. James Gunn's brother is like, we should have dropped him off with his dad. And uh, Glenn Close does a DNA test on him for some reason. You're not human. Or not entirely human. You're something eight more ancient than we could possibly believe. Yeah. You're uh, something that will be explained later. But yeah, but it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, there isn't really that much origin story here. Like there's a little bit, you know, you're the daughter of, uh, of Thanos. You are an experiment gone wrong. You're a fucking tree. Your entire planet got destroyed by Ronin. 
you're some kid. That's really kind of the extent of well, origin again, like if if here. we're if we're talking about what makes uh, for wildly enjoyable uh, comedic action film set in space. That's Star Wars right there. That's yeah. the first Star Wars right there. So, okay, you're a farm boy, and you're a smuggler, and you're a space princess, and you're yeah. a giant yeah. bear thing, and we got two robots, and we're going to put you together on a ship, and you've got a mission. So yeah, go do like that the, mission. The universe, the universe like the, that diegesis, the story world of Star Wars in A New Hope is is much smaller than the yeah. story world it's we see in any other. And, yeah. and yeah. this, not to belabor the point, but uh, to illustrate it using a different example, have you guys seen Fido? The horror comedy about the zombies with and, uh, Billy uh, Barty, <laughs> Barty, the Scottish comedian, uh, Billy Connolly. Oh. Billy Connolly. Billy Is he Connolly. in that? Yeah, he's he's Fido. Oh God, you're right. I think I forgot. Are that. we not talking about a dog right now? What's happening? No, he's a zombie. He's a zombie. There's not like people have pet zombies uh, where they wear this collar, and but it takes place in the most cliche like. Technicolor version of the 50s that you've ever seen. And oh. I think that when you're trying to do something, uh, when you're trying to establish something that is very far out of left field, then it helps to work in distinct established cliches. And yeah. like Star Wars being, to my knowledge, the first film that ever existed completely separate from any kind of human civilization and is supposed to be an entirely different galaxy. It's the first one that I know of. There may have been sci-fi films before That's that. That's an interesting did, question. Like, all the famous I, ones I, that I'm aware of were like Us in the Future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, yeah, no, no. You're, you're, like, yeah. I certainly I certainly can't go, but you've forgotten about, you know, anything. Yeah. I've forgotten about I, Planet they're, of they're, the they're, Apes. They weren't anywhere near Earth in that. They were on an ape planet. Yeah. Yeah, Princess and farm boy and so on. Guy yearning for everything. And that is the balance that 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 this movie finds in that is almost, I would say, insultingly uh, good because it, it really leans heavily. It's not the word that I thought you were going to come back to when you led with insultingly. It leans really heavily on established stuff yeah. so that if you are the kind of person that wants to see something really new, then you're going to get frustrated at certain points in this movie. Uh, yeah. But uh, it also gives you enough new stuff that it does it did feel like a real departure at the time. And it gives you the dramatic flexibility yeah. to follow up in the sequel with a weird space brain. Yeah. But <laughs> you I mean, wanted I think, something weird and new. I think, I think what you're getting There's at is There's a space of, brain that's been boning his way across the galaxy. I mean, one, of the, one of the things I think you're getting at here is sort of like the narrative value of tropes or, or even genres with yeah. sort of a yeah. packaging of yeah, people yeah. enough to hang a lot of people. On. A lot of people think, you know, oh, this is just a cliche. This is a, tr- a trope so that I've seen over and over again. That must be bad. But like, but it's the, how narration works. Yeah, but the pleasure, the pleasure of a trope done well, or the pleasure of like sitting down and like seeing, you know, this is a western that blows the door off of westerns. This is a rom com that's doing something interesting with a rom com. Yeah. There's something really nice about like seeing something that's very familiar, but it does something. Here's a horror film about racism. If not, if yes, not new, exactly. you don't have to change new, at least everything. Interesting with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know, just I think this is a movie. Things that, again, as I said before, this a is a very... bit so that it doesn't feel like you're watching every movie you've seen before. Yeah, but and then you don't have to think about that while you process this other thing that is much deeper and more meaningful. 
Yeah, it's like it's like paint by numbers, but you've chosen interesting colors for oh, the for the yeah. sec sections. Like there's a there's a formula you're following, as we said. This you're is doing many ways numbers, a very like highlights picture, but then in the background there's a dragon like crawling out of a human or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's a paint by numbers. It's H.R. Geiger's highlights. But it's a magic eye. Um, and then you cross your no, eyes I, and it's a dolphin. I, I like I like that idea, and I I I think that the additional piece that layers into that is. Uh, when you have established the tropes that you're going to play to, then it raises the question of, okay, where are you going to stretch in terms yeah. of color? And, and in a way, one of the things that's, that is interesting to me about this film is you have these characters that are quickly established, and although you don't know their backstories or that full side, you very quickly get a sense of what they are about mm-hmm. and how they will react in situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the, it, the, the joy of the film comes not from what are the situations they're going to find them in, because as we have, sta- have established, they're fairly paint by numbers in a lot of ways. It's yeah. the, the extension of them and the reaction to those situations by these characters in a way that is interesting and satisfying. Yeah. But I, um, think I think it's really important that none of your five main characters ever like, betray each other. They're all very open about what they want, no one else is saying, no, you can't have that money, yeah. or no, you can't kill that person, but maybe we should try to save these other people, and then you can kill that person. So what, what yeah, this brings closest, to mind The closest is, we get to a betrayal is Drax calling, um, yeah. Call, yeah. calling them. Which is, and, which is entirely motivated and... Yeah. Yeah, and it's with his character, and no one yeah. would expect him yeah, not exactly. to do that. Really. So, like, you know, you were, Stephanie, you were just saying, like, we don't know a lot about these characters, but we know exactly as much as we need to. Yeah. I yeah. don't think there's any point in these movies where I'm like, this is just a, a rough sketch of a character. Mm-hmm. Like, even, yeah, like, the, the, yeah, yeah, except more than we, yeah. Then we'll, yes. yeah, exactly. but like, of the five main characters, I don't think there's any point where I'm like, I need, I need to know more about you, yeah. Rocket, for this scene to work. Yeah. I, I like, it, it's narratively very efficient. So ne- needlessly pedantic, but um, what, what it actually makes me think of is, uh, weirdly enough, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the gang. And the, it's the gang, and, and the they're thing about in. the gang, they're Except all in. The, yeah. And, and in, in every, in, yeah, that, obviously. But, <laughs> um, one of the, the thing that made me fall in love with that show was, um, there are things now that I'm are find the gang to yeah to, there to, to yeah um, there so are things that are V is Gamora because oh, they're yeah. the girl think about it while Stefan makes his point yeah <laughs> yeah um, there are things that are funny on the show because they come out of left field but there are things that are funny because they are purely consistent to character and the the moment that I fell in love with that show was really early on in the um, uh, the episode about abortion where. Um, Mac is uh, vehemently pro-life in this episode because he thinks it's going to make this, uh, this woman want to have sex with him. Uh-huh. And then they have sex, and they're at a pro-life protest. And uh, the woman runs up to Mac and says, Mac, I'm pregnant. And without hesitation, he puts both hands on her shoulders and says, you need to get an abortion. <laughs> and and it, it was like, there are... A, there are a lot of ways that that joke can go. Like he can him and haul about it, or he can like you could set up several episodes yeah. around the subplot. But I just I loved the honesty of both hands on her shoulder, big grin on his face. Yeah, you need to get an abortion. Well, it's it's interesting that you that like it reminds you of uh, of comedy stuff because I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder to what extent the fact that 
uh, you know, like James Gunn has a comedy background, and this whole film, Chris Pratt does, uh, Chris, Chris Pratt does as well. Um, yeah. Bradley Cooper, really, to a big extent too. How how much that maybe sharpens the the narration in this film yeah. or the the script of this film? I mean, because like at at its heart, like a lot of traditions of comedy, it, it's about kind of narrative efficiency. Like for a joke yeah. to be funny, it, it has to be told well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm thinking of something like improv, where you know you you have to establish the sort of rules of the character yeah. very quickly. Um, yeah. For, Otherwise, there's work. no expectation to play against. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, but I think and so, I think also sitcoms in general also fit mm-hmm. within this. Like, I mean, we, we talked earlier about like Chris Pratt clearly, you know, works well in an ensemble uh, yeah. setting. And you know, I think that's, you know what we're talking about sort of like we we know as much as we need to about characters. That's true of a lot of of sitcom characters. Like, if you watch mm-hmm. the first episode of a sitcom. You could probably write the entirety of a of a uh, of their characterization and not even need a complete sentence, yeah. and like you just sort of slowly build up over that. So you know, right. D is, as she appears in the in the first episode, sort of slowly you accumulate right. characters. Which is which is not to say that like that automatically means you'll have a compelling character. I mean, shows yeah. like Two Broke Girls yeah, yeah. are still <laughs> are still made. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah obviously, so with Sunny in Philadelphia has done a better job of like revealed character. Uh, traits uh, or backgrounds than maybe any other comedy that retroactively colors perception giving you more stuff what was the phrase you use uh adaptive uh, additive comprehension additive Additive comprehension yeah 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 Yeah. but i think i think that's one of like the best one of the things that sitcoms are really good about that sort of accumulation that sort of snowballing of characterization and like in any given episode a character is probably still pretty one-dimensional but you get so many so many dimensions of them on one axis yeah. that you end up with an incredibly nuanced understanding of them. You know, by the time you get to you know the tenth or eleventh, whatever season we're on of it's always sunny, or you know, yeah. after nine seasons of The Office, you know, you've seen Stanley be a one-dimensional character a hundred times, mm-hmm. but like that, even even with such a narrow character as Stanley, mm-hmm. you end up with a lot of nuance. Mm-hmm. And somebody like Jim, obviously, you know, you've given an entire sphere of dimensions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, in Always Sunny, that it it's insane for a character who is pro-life and really cares about Catholicism and the the character traits of a Catholic to turn on a dime and say you need to get an abortion. That would seem like counter to his character, but it's so consistent with all it's of them being utterly consistent. egotistical sociopaths that. Yeah. Uh, that it works and there's almost a, a kind of innocence to it. Yeah. That, Although that also consistently. I, I don't think like him as a devout Catholic is that well established early he on. He believes that he's a devout Catholic. Yeah. Like, it's his understanding. Well, of well, it becomes everything superficially. There's yeah. no depth to any of his values. Yeah. But it definitely, it's not as, it's not as defining a character trait as it becomes like, you know, no, but I mean, there are a lot of character traits that he clearly came up with later, but yeah, work consistently in a, in a way. Like, yeah, like there's people nothing... do change over time and the things that they care about change uh, you know from yeah, week so to like week it's, or a, year it's year. a fine li- it's a fine line between flanderization which is where like one dimension of it like becomes yeah. like 
you know, if, if you're not familiar with that term, like Ned Flanders is not a religious zealot in the early seasons of The Simpsons. He's just no, like he buys shoes called the Assassins, which he would never yeah, buy. Later he's a he's a he's a he's like an aggressively nice and like more affluent and successful neighbor that just gets in his craw, and then like his highly doodly. Uh, Christianity becomes such a defining characteristic. That's the only dimension of him. And or like, Yo- or like Yoda, where Yoda, where his yeah, yeah. Or you know, in yeah. Friends, in Friends, at some point Ross becomes a guy with an anger management problem, which there's no hint of in early seasons. It just mm-hmm. they decide at some point that he has anger management problems. The but, two examples I would go to that are uh, contextually relevant are Yoda turning from a wise sage-like being into just a grammatical structure joke. Yeah. And then, uh, on the other hand, uh, Dr. Julian Bashir, uh, after oh six seasons, <laughs> becoming a genetically engineered <laughs> Superman. No, they... Oh, it was right there the whole time. How did I not notice it? <laughs> There are so many episodes in the last few seasons of DS9 where everything is just solved by Dr. Bashir going, by the way, I'm a genetically engineered superhuman. I've solved it. That's the solution to so many episodes. I did not know that about him, given that I still have only seen, like, the first two seasons of that show. You wouldn't know it if you've seen the first five or maybe even six. You don't know it until halfway through that episode, and then it becomes the only character trait he has other than he loves uh, Miles. His love for Miles and he is a, he is a Kanye and Superman become yeah. his only things. Uh, I uh, to bring it back around uh, that same kind of heartwarming quality to like the team atmosphere of Always Sunny is I think very important in this film that because as soon as they all end up in prison together and establish that they don't have overt reason to hate each other even if they thought that they did. Like, uh-huh. they're, Rocket and Groot are going to protect Quill from anyone else in prison because he's their payday. Uh, then there are specific reasons for them to... They're going to protect Gamora because she's the one with the line to the seller, or yes. the buyer, that's going to get him four billion units. Yeah, and uh, uh, Drax is in because he wants to kill Gamora as well as uh, her... Ronan. He wants to kill Ronan, and, and Gamora is his bait. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, he, he also wants to kill Gamora at that point, but uh, he shifts it upward. Uh, and, but and then shifts it upward again. At the very beginning, they're actually all in. They're not waiting to betray each other. They're, they're not hiding anything. They're, they actually are committed to being friends because like, Peter Quill has been alone in terms of... Well, no, he, he had a whole team. I don't know... He had his ravagers. Does he just yeah, betray I, them? Well, I guess Yondu always treated him like crap, so yeah. that's a good reason to betray him. But uh, normal people don't threaten yeah, like, people. Yeah, <laughs> like the, the the movie suggests that he just ran off from uh, the ravagers. But like when he said he's been alone, I was like, yeah, that's true. He has nobody. But like again, this is sort of that weird <laughs> disconnect between what the movie tells us and like the way he's characterized. Yeah, it would it would that. make more. It would make more sense, like, if he hadn't seen the Ravagers in five years and he's been on his yeah. own trying to make it as himself. A lot of the characterization feels like it makes more sense with that being his station right yeah. now. But, anyway. Uh, yeah, the point, I, I just feel like it matters that they are willingly become friends. That, that they're yeah. not... Uh, that well, the, they don't the, the, distrust the, each other the way that you would expect inmates in a a prison satellite thing to be. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure I'd exactly characterize them as friends at that point. But like, they're for Stefan since he does the recording. Is he? I'm I'm here. I my video. Oh, okay. uh, Created an issue because I got a uh, got a FaceTime message coming in. Oh, okay. Screwed up my video. Sorry, you may not see me. But 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 we're still good on the recording. Oh yeah, recording's still good. Okay. So anyway, as I was saying, like, Wait, I'm not sure. I haven't recorded a thing we've said. <laughs> oh, Everyone, no, no. turn back oh, to no. page one of your script. All right. So, <laughs> at the very beginning, it's 1988. There's this yeah. little boy. His mom is dying. He's listening to good music. Yeah, we got, he doesn't we talked touch about her hand. The dark world a bunch before any of this. George oh, Washington man. elf. <laughs> yes. uh, oh, actually, this while we're on the subject of that me. scene at the beginning, Peter Quill's grandfather must have an amazing story that deserves to be told. Like his daughter dies of cancer and that same night, his only grandson just disappears off the face yeah. of the earth. What must yeah, have happened to point. this man? Well, this that's a good point. Someone this saw man... the spaceship, right? It wasn't cloaked. Like, Did he see it though? I mean, well, it was right outside the hospital. I'm saying someone probably He was saw. wrecked with grief because his daughter just died. Yeah, He's not nobody's gonna, to that. Nobody's going to believe him. People are going to be suspicious. What did he do to that little boy? Where is, oh, where is uh, maybe Peter? He'll be the Maybe he'll be the villain of the third film. Yeah. Where he gets out of jail and goes to the stars to try to hunt down this kid who <laughs> uh, framed him for, uh, for abduction. Yeah. Yeah, he got convicted of murdering his daughter with... Uh, cancer and then murdering uh his grandson with spaceship yeah <laughs> it's a story as old as time yeah let's um let's move and I, I know we've talked a lot about this uh film but maybe let's move into final thoughts because yeah. we've been talking about the film for about two hours yeah no we've we've had a we had more to say about it than i expected this has been yeah. a good conversation that's a good film yeah, but I feel like sometimes when we watch movies that we like, we are just yeah. kind of like, there's not a lot to say. Yeah, it was good. I'll, I'll start. Uh, Go for it. I, okay. I think this is a really good film. Uh, this is probably, I don't know, the maybe the fifth time or uh, that I've seen it. Um, and it still makes me chuckle. I mean, uh, yeah. that, that, that scene after Groot spears all of those henchmen and, yeah. you know, goes side to side and yeah, yeah, know, yeah. kills them all and then turns to camera and <laughs> smiles, his Groot smile, I crack up every time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just fantastic. the greatest. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, it's hard to pick the standout Guardian of the Galaxy. Like, we talked a little bit about yeah. Drac being kind of the, the breakaway character, but Groot has if a very had- strong... If you Groot has a very strong claim. Yeah, Groot, Groot yeah. is in the public consciousness the breakout here. Um, and yeah, but, I mean, the scene where he goes and pulls the the thing off the wall in the prison as there. Yep. Just yep. because Rocket just yeah. said it, so he just goes to it's do fantastic. it. Fantastic. That's and the, yeah. yeah. And I and I remember like everybody in the world wanted a baby, a dancing baby Groot yes. after uh, after this movie, and like the merchandising wasn't there yet. Etsy was crazy with uh, stuffed Groots. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, 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 the final thing I'll say is that, um, James Gunn's, uh, filmography, uh, is actually pretty interesting because he, he started at Troma Studios um, oh, wow. and <laughs> he, uh, he, he appeared in a Troma film. <laughs> that is just something I noticed on his Wikipedia page. He appeared in a trauma film called Sergeant Kabuki Man Public yeah, Service Announcement. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've never seen a trauma film, or, and, you know, we, we watched, like, parts of Poultry Guys, and then I almost vomited. Um, in which, terrible. In which he is credited, 
in which James Gunn is credited with the role insane masturbator. That's how you get your that's how you get your SAG card. <laughs> so, you know, I just shot, thought that I would share that with you guys and with our listeners. He also oh, made PG porn. Yes, he was also PG porn, which is very funny. The most, uh, well, my second most famous trauma film after uh, Toxic, Toxic uh, Avenger. Yes, but James Gunn's PG porn, my favorite one of those is Helpful Bus. Yes, Helpful Bus is the best one. It's so good. So, yeah, check it out. All right. Dude, what your final thought? Uh, I... After I'd watched this the first time, I, it left a real sour taste in my mouth, uh, mm. just because I was—I felt that the structure was so transparent, and there were script elements that were really clumsily done. Uh, but watching it this time, I very, very much enjoyed it, and I felt like I got more of the experience that other people had had the first time. Uh, I, I do still think that a lot of it is like unwatchably obvious, but uh, and I, I think the script probably could have used like. A little more depth or one more rewrite but uh i think it's a good movie and i i do still wonder why glenn close is in it uh in that fair, completely fair. uninteresting role with nothing to do um, and maybe she yeah, had kids or grandkids who really love the marvel movies it could just be yeah. the uh yeah that's Grandma, probably true maybe in the sequel still think that like they could yeah. have given her something to do yeah no that character that character is entirely a. Yeah, it's just filler. Vamp! Now he's back. Hey, there you go. <laughs> All right. Did we did we lose recording there? For like less than a minute. I think the last thing that you guys said was you were talking about PG porn, and then um, yeah, talking about James Gunn, and then Dooge was starting his final thought and talking about how film left a bad taste in his mouth. Oh yeah, initially, but then watching it again, I, I really enjoyed it and. I think that it does everything that it's trying to do very well. I think that it probably should have tried to do a little bit more, mm -hmm. but you know, it's, it is funny. It's got a lot of really funny moments and it carries the Marvel universe in the direction that it wanted to. So uh, I give it a thumbs up. Yeah. Thanks Roper. <laughs> <laughs> Bester, your final thought. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, you know I really liked this movie. I think you know uh, I think in terms of like two sequences, back to back movies, this and Winter Soldier is probably like peak MCU for me. Yeah. Uh, Winter Soldier is still definitely my all time favorite uh, MCU movie. I honestly think Thor Ragnarok may have unseated this as number two, but I'll probably need a little bit more time and to see that movie again. But uh, you know, I think this is you know this is an excellent movie. I, I for one really liked it uh, when I first saw it. I've uh, I, this is at least the third, probably the fourth time I've seen it. Uh, I think you know it, it has some issues. You know, we've talked about Ronan, but that's that's such a common universal problem with marvel movies and with superhero movies in general like i think there's only like three or four marvel movies that have you know compelling villains and and um, like yeah. three of those the villain is magneto yeah so like magneto loki um bucky to the extent that he's sort of an anti-hero i think hella in uh, ragnarok I, I enjoy don't forget willem uh, dafoe uh no no i'm not gonna include him but yeah like there's just not that 
Yeah, the jeweler. He's got a nose uh, for diamonds. I, think, I mean, one thing one thing I do, you know, to sort of go outside of the movie for a moment, one thing that does bug me about this movie is uh, the amount Bradley of attention Cooper? that James got. Well, no, no, no. But the, the amount of credit that James Gunn gets for this, because okay. Nicole Perlman is uh, wrote the uh, the first two drafts of this movie. She's a huge part of why this movie is as successful as it is. And she she gets written out of sort of the industrial discourse and sort of the, the popular consciousness of this movie. This is very much something that, you know, James, James Gunn gets, you know, kind of a fanboy auteur, uh, street cred, you know, people just like, uh-huh. you know, this is James Gunn's movie. And, you know, Nicole Perlman is, you know, working on Captain Marvel. She's, you know, continuing to work. But, you know, I, I, it's shitty that she did not get, uh, you know, as much credit as she deserved for uh, for this movie. Well, you'll, you'll get to um, enjoy plenty of her work in the future when she does Captain Marvel, a sequel to Labyrinth, and Pokemon Detective Pikachu. I don't. I don't know how to process that last one. Uh, I mean, I, I, okay. Is that is that the one where it's Pikachu, but he has like a deep man's voice? Deep man's voice. He's got a detective hat. That's the film that Legendary is making. This is the live action okay. Pokemon film. I remember, you had me at okay, Pikachu. Yeah, I remember detective hat. I remember. I remember hearing right? about that. That's what I a detective hat is now. Say yeah. again. Um, What's a detective? Deer stalker. Yep. Tom's hat. Yep. Fair enough. No. Oh. I mean, Nick, Nick, would you would you say it's fair to say that um, Nicole Perlman's the reason that we got Guardians of the Galaxy as the you know the sort of new developed, newly developed Marvel property that they decided um, to? Go I don't, I don't know enough about like the production history of this too. Because she was she was in like the Marvel had like a screenwriting program or yep. something. Yeah. So according according was... to Wikipedia, she was enrolled in Marvel's screenwriting program, during which time she was offered several of their lesser known properties on which to base a screenplay. Out of those, she chose Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. So, so it, it yeah, was it, pre- it was like she... on the table, but it sounds like she was the one who put the kind of the wood behind the arrow, so to speak. Yeah. And you know, I think, you know, uh the history of film is, you know, littered with directors, usually male directors, getting, you know, un, un, uh, not undeserved, but like o- over, Unheard. overly credited with the success of their movies. Yeah. When you know, films are inherently a uh, a collaborative effort, and you know, James Gunn has a screenwriting credit on this, and you know, I'm sure, I'm sure he did a lot of things to make this movie work the way that it does. But, uh, you know, I. And it's and it's it's impossible to really parse out like this is Nicole Perlman's uh, stuff. This is uh, James Gunn's stuff. This is the editor's stuff. This is the sound uh, director's stuff, uh, which is why sort of an a tourist one one artist kind of view of film has always no, been such no. a Kubrick was ridiculous for everything. <laughs> ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous fucking uh, idea. Damn you, Andrew Harris. The camera. Fucking Andrew Saris, you goddamn Galaxy Quest villain motherfucker. Um, You're just, you are making all kinds of enemies tonight. Andrew Saris, oh, I've, Bradley yeah, he's, Cooper. He's, he's, I, hate, I hate Bradley Cooper more than I Genesis hate Andrew Saris. Whoa. Just saying something. Whoa. <laughs> the ghost uh, of Andrew Saris returns to haunt Nick. Yes. But I team up with the ghost of Pauline Kale. I think she's dead. She might not be. I'm not sure. I or maybe it's Octogenarian Pauline Kale and me back to back fighting, uh, fighting Andrew oh, Saris. Stop. Pauline Kale's been dead for like there, 15 stop. years. Stop. Right. Or the ghost of Pauline Kale will shoot. Uh, uh, yes. 
<laughs> that would be amazing. Um, so yeah, anyway, um, I think I think that's it for my like. I really like this movie. I liked it from the get go. I think uh, I think you know, e- even as somebody who hates Bradley Cooper with a fiery passion, even that can't can't stop it. I, I like I like Rocket Raccoon. It's not like I, it's not like I'm going like I like everything about this, but that character, even even Bradley Cooper. I, I don't mind in this. And, you know, Vin Diesel as, you know, as ridiculous as it is to get one of the highest paid actors in the world to, uh, is he, is he doing the performance capture as well? Or is he I only he the voice? I think he did the performance capture. I, Bradley okay. Cooper did not do the performance capture for Rocket, but I'm pretty sure Vin Diesel did it for Groot. Yeah. Uh, I'm so. imagining Bradley Cooper actually dressing up in a, in a raccoon costume. What? Helps me get the character. Um, because he's a pro. <laughs> but yeah. So, you know, there's there's something just so absurd about like as we said earlier that like pro- the two biggest most bankable stars in this are are playing a raccoon and a talking tree who has three I, lines. I have to feel like three they words. did that on purpose yeah. for the oh, same yeah, reason. No, I'm sure. Yeah, that like they they want to give you something familiar but not too familiar. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, and you know I think you know this is you know Chris Pratt. This is absolutely you know the movie that puts Chris Pratt on the A list. You know Jurassic World. Jurassic World's his next movie after this. It's probably already yeah, in production by the time this yeah. movie comes out. So, you know, there was going to be other things, but, like, the the Hollywood machine that had decided he was going to be the next big star had smiled kindly upon him at this point. And, you know, this is sort of the thing where the, the audience is like, oh, yes. And sometimes the machine you know, chooses somebody like Taylor Kitchener or Taylor Lautner and, like, nope, not going to happen. Uh, but then you get a bunch more movies with them for some reason. Uh, but it seems, seems to be working reasonably well for Chris Pratt. Or Josh Hartnett. Remember Josh Hartnett? Star, oh, yeah. yeah there was Star that of uh, 40 Although, Days honestly, and 40 Nights. I have seen oh. I, I saw that on a date in high school. Uh, that is the one movie that I I feel like of his that I did not particularly like. But oh in general, I've been I've heard good. That is, was in a lot of really that good is the, the most bullshit rom-com miscommunication in the history of time. It's bad. The, oh, the, but lucky number oh, no, seven. You're mad at me at, I've heard yeah. good things about the, Penny Dreadful. The, oh, no. I, <laughs> I've done something and I need yeah. to win back the girl. The thing that he has to win back from is being raped. He gets raped, Jesus. and that is, yeah. And yeah. he and and it, then it, then it's a whole like I'm sorry I got raped. Let's uh, let's uh, yeah. let's be a couple now. That's pretty it's, awful. It's a real bad film. Jesus. It's so it's it's even worse than here's a guy who's not going to masturbate or have sex for forty days. Even worse than that concept suggests so, it's going to so be. So they buried the lead. Uh, okay. I'm going through my notes trying to see, like, what, if anything, I have left to say about this. I got to to describe the dark uh, Aster as a suddenly in everything. Oh, yeah. Oscar Isaac's another good example. Yeah. Yeah. It's always sort of interesting how, like, it it really feels like, you know, they go from I don't know who this guy is to in he's to he's in everything major for the next. I remember there was like there was like years, a like, fall where uh, Jude Law had six movies come out or something. Yeah, um, yeah. There's always sort of that interesting like, and sometimes it works really well. You know, mm-hmm. Chris Pratt may, may, maybe in three years will be going. Remember when Chris Pratt was a thing? Yeah. Uh, we'll see. You know, I don't know what else he has in production other than uh, Infinity War. But uh, I guess my last thought, uh, just to circle back, um, I do really like Lee Pace, and I do think he was really underused in this film. But if you want to watch him in something that he is not underused in and that is also beautiful, uh, go watch The Fall, 
which is fantastic. The or, fall is beautiful. Track down pushing daisies. Yep. Oh yes. Or pushing daisies. He's great in that. Uh, he's I I can't recommend the Hobbit movies even with Lee Pace. That's just not, not a thing. They're not very no. good. Uh, I don't think Peter he, Jackson. I feel like I feel. Like, yeah, I feel like Lee Pace was also had uh, like a he didn't quite hit, but I think there was uh, like a concerted effort a few years ago to try and make him be the next big thing. He's, he's uh, it felt like he's big on TV. It felt like he was like, oh yeah, he's a TV I mean, he's star. Got, he's back on home. Yeah, but I think there was a there there like in, around this time like three or four years ago, it definitely felt like there was a, a yeah. moment where he was like, in Lincoln. Was he was like he was like the primary antagonist in Lincoln. He was he was Twilight uh, breaking Dawn Part Two. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, he was in Twilight, he was in this, he was in like he was in a lot of major things all at once or within a couple of years of each other. They definitely felt like, you know, the publicity machine had decided Lee Pace and his amazing eyebrows are, are next up and I think the reason maybe he, didn't I think the work. reason he didn't make it was because uh, they didn't lean into the eyebrows in the marketing. Think about Hollywood in the thirties. Yeah. He would have been the man with the magnificent eyebrows. <laughs> they would have sold him that yes. way. But uh, yeah, Stefan, you have some amazing eyebrows yourself. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Lee, Lee Pace's eyebrows would have uh, had a Lloyd's of London insurance policy taken out on them for a million dollars. They would have called him Lee Face. Yeah, Lee Face. And if he uh, if he were to lose those eyebrows in an unfortunate grilling accident, he would have uh, <laughs> his career would have been impacted. Yes. All right. But yeah, he no, I have kind of Clark Gable thing going. Yeah, Lee, Lee Pace is fantastic. Lee Pace is fantastic, mustache. and he's yeah. he's very much wasted. He should you know, grow I a think... mustache. Then he'd have three mustaches. <laughs> <laughs> as well cast as this movie is, there's a lot of people who are kind of wasted. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, let's bring this one to a close, just to say a preview for next time, uh, What's next? guys. Uh, I got some bad news. We have another team up film, but it's not necessarily one we want to watch. I love Age of Ultron. Is it Ultron? It is is Avengers Age of Ultron. I have not seen it since it came out, and I, like, watching Civil War again, uh, like, last week or the week before, like, it worked much better. I'm expecting I may like this better than I liked it before, but I did not like it. It left a very bad taste in my mouth. But but I'm excited to watch it again. It's one I've been wanting to watch again for a while, but I've been like, I'm pretty sure it's coming up soon. I'll I'll hold off on it. Here's the problem for me right now. Um, I'm looking at the films that are directly ahead of us, and uh, I can't help but skip ahead a couple in my mind because we've got yeah, Age of Ultron. Fantastic Four is what we want. Yeah, we have Age of Ultron yeah. coming. So it's Age of Ultron. Here, here are our okay. next five: Age of Ultron, Ant Man, Fantastic Four, which I want to see so badly. Oh, I didn't. I did not realize we were so close. Yep. Yeah. Then uh, Deadpool. Which I think will be very Ooh. fun to talk about, and which we I are, we have we have really gotten to the uh, to the contemporary moment yep. now. Deadpool, <laughs> and then uh, Captain America: Civil War. So okay. to put us on the timeline here, uh, this is the last film that we will watch, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, that came out in 2014. So Hi. we are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven films from being caught up to present day. Now, by the time we get there, a few yeah. more will have come out, but we're and, getting they, there. and they must. And they must almost all be um, MCU movies at this point because we've got X-Men like Fox yeah, except, except for the X Men, X Men Apocalypse, Logan, and Deadpool. It must be the only ones on that list that aren't it. And the, fan, and Fantastic, the Fantastic Mr. Four. 
Um, yeah. I, I am so looking forward to Fantastic Four. I'm sure it will be terrible. But also, it's... my sexiest man alive will be in it. Uh, Miles Teller? Um, no, fucking Michael. I know. I know. I know. I think Adonis Creed himself. Uh, X-Men Apocalypse is the only one that I'm not like actively looking yeah. forward to watching for the podcast. I, I want and... to see them all, and I'm looking forward to seeing them all. But I like Fantastic Four is the film that I have been looking forward to for like ten episodes. I mean, now. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only one that I haven't seen. Like, I can't wait to see. Is it possible that they do actually keep getting worse? Could this possibly Everything be I've the worst? Final says minute? that it does. I'll yeah. be disappointed if I... it's not as at least as bad as Rise of the Silver Surfer. I'm really excited. desperately want to see the original script that was not. It sounds like produced. it was just chopped to bits. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing is that I want, I want the the director whose name I cannot remember. Josh Trank. Uh, Josh Trank. Yeah. Uh, the director to, whose name you will never see again. He I would love to know his own career. What the <laughs> original vision was, because I guarantee what that it's the... infinitely better than whatever we got. He did Chronicle. Chronicle, is that what the, the one that was effectively an Akita remake without it being technically an Akita remake? Like found footage, right? superhero, psychic yeah. powers, yeah. Yeah, it was essentially a Kaneda like Tetsuo showdown. At Kaneda! The yeah, Chronicle engine. Tetsuo! Yeah, uh, is this the beginning of a new universe? Yeah, so uh, only, only a couple films away from Fantastic Four, but we have to get through two... Um, Mediocre to enjoyable films before we can get to yeah. to that yeah. peak. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm 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 excited to watch Age of Ultron again just because I think it'll it'll improve. What was the other one Ant in the Man. middle? Ant Man. Ant Man. I really that's I, a, I like Ant Man. That's another one I wish I would I would like to see the original script for because Edgar Wright was supposed oh, yeah, to. Be, yeah, yeah, yeah. script was supposed to be amazing. I'm not. I don't know if I want yeah. to see the original script for that. I might want to see the original direction for that. I'm not sure that the script changed radically, but I. Would I understand say, that it did. Yeah, well, that's why. Yeah, aesthetically, yeah. it's certainly very different than it would have been. But like, I think, I think it's like you know something I think we've talked about in the past. You know, I feel like a lot of like this sort of current moment of franchise film production relies on really sort of uh, like journeyman directors, not necessarily like ones with like huge authorial oh, yeah. stamps. Like you know, James Gunn earns his authorial stamp from this movie, but you know. Uh, the, the the two guys hired off Han Solo. Like we, we we don't want we don't want you you know confusing things. We don't want Edgar Wright getting all Edgar Wrighty on this. We need it to be uh-huh. we need it to be the house style. Yeah, it's, so, so frustrating. Yeah. Okay, so uh, it's frustrating, but also I understand it. We, we got, uh... we're talking we're talking about adventures that are like costing hundreds of millions of dollars and like ten billion dollars in merchandising might yeah, come just, out of these. But kinds imagine of if you'd had a an artistic or directorial vision for Thor the Dark World instead of just another schlock Thrones. Film. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I I agree. But you I'm, know, I think, you know, I'm very I'll, interested I'll, to see I think Ant Man turned out well and you know I'll be interested to see I'll definitely be interested to see how um the Han Solo movie turns out. That'll be interesting just from a production standpoint. I'm really interested to see how Black Panther turns out. I haven't seen Fruitvale Station, oh. but I really liked Creed and I really liked what Ryan Coogler did with that. And yeah, I still need to. I started watching Creed and something I can't remember what it was. Like there was a phone call I had to deal with, and I. Watch uh, it. It's awesome. It's great. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's it's like probably this. It's at least the second best Rocky movie. 
16. It's really. Are you cool. counting the first Rocky as the best one, or one yeah, of the one I mean, of the if, funny if, ones? If, if I'm being like honest with myself, the first Rocky is is the best one. Um, yeah, but like no, it, not necessarily the most fun. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, That's like R- Ryan. So Ryan five. Ryan Coogler I mean, four. did create Sorry, four. Yeah, four. Four. Four, is, four is clearly the fun one. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan Coogler did Creed. It's fantastic. Um, his four, two, his three. style in that film is not something I would expect to translate to a big budget tentpole film. So I'm yeah. interested to see how that turns out. Um, I'll be honest. My, my, I uh, I forgot that Rocky Five existed, and I just remembered oh, the one fair. that Ivan Drago is the last of the that's original fair. films. I've never so seen it. The, it just it went never, to five in my head. Yeah, I've never seen the fifth one. I've never also, seen Rocky Balboa. Is Rocky Balboa is okay, but that was like the, that was the sixth one, the one that came out. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I, I really like Rocky Balboa, but you know. It's, right. So it's, guys, it's just a solid film to end the main series on. I do want to propose something. Um, because I think we, we probably have a enough... suicide pack. Yes. Well, kind of, um, <laughs> if more, if Marvel, if the MCU ever ends, we die. So What's up? there What's is, that? so there is, um, we can, this may sound crazy. Uh, we've got probably enough time left to, uh, to record one more episode this year. Uh, my mm. between travel and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it might be worthwhile to record a a holiday episode. 